0: And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the Filet-O-Fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the Filet-O-Fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I will be the meanest bastard you ever saw when I get out of here. That is what John Herbert Dillinger supposedly said shortly after being sent to prison for a failed attempt at robbing a local grocer after assaulting the man when he was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison at the age of 21. He'd served nine and a half years, get out, and immediately set upon a violent and short and insane 14-month-long crime spree full of prison breakouts, shootouts with law enforcement, and multiple instances of stealing the police's own weapons to use against them. Dillinger was an American bank robber during the Great Depression in the United States who led a gang that robbed roughly two dozen banks and numerous other businesses. During his brief crime spree, Dillinger would escape from jail twice. He would also help bust numerous other bank robbers and murderers out of prison in Indiana. He was shot multiple times, had face-altering plastic surgery, and became one of the most famous men in all of America. He would become public enemy number one and also become one of the most notorious Depression-era outlaws of all time. He even stood out against more violent criminals of his day, men like Babyface Nelson, Pretty Boy Floyd, and Bonnie and Clyde. The newspapers of his time exaggerated accounts of Dillinger's bravado and daring. The media loved John. And so did huge swaths of regular Americans. The government was not so stoked about him. He and his gang reshaped the nation's law enforcement tactics and level of authority. The government demanded federal action to stop the wave of lawlessness that he was a part of. J. Edgar Hoover, longtime head of the FBI, beefed up the Federal Bureau of Investigation's powers substantially in response to the wave of organized crime in the early 30s that Dillinger and his gang represented. So strap in. Let's get ready for a very rebel without a cause, Tommy Gun Blast and Gangsters, Molls, and Coppers edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> Holy shit, and happy Monday, question mark, time suckers. I'm Dan Cummins, a master sucker, and I imagine you, like everyone else listening to this around the time that it comes out at the very least, are scared, and we're with you. Hail Nimrod, we've never needed you more, big guy. Hail Lucifina, do something about this pandemic. Praise Bojangles, please piss on this stupid fucking virus, and Glory be to Triple M, hoping you can help sing some of this scary shit away. Hoping I can help take your mind off some of this crazy right now, Meat Sacks. My stand-up tour, Toxic Thoughts, has been suspended because it's just too dangerous to travel right now. And frankly, most venues are shut down for the time being across the country. I'm sure most of you already know that. Stand-up comedy is currently on life support, right when we need to laugh the most. My heart goes out to all the comedy club and theater managers, owners and their staffs, bartenders, security, waitstaff, every other employee around the world affected by the response to this virus. Just know that if you're scared, if you're like, what the fuck is going on? The rest of us are right there with you. I always thought that if my stand-up tour were to go away, it would be because my fans no longer thought I was funny. Never expected anything like this. Know that the second that we are allowed to all go back to work, I will be right back out there, touring again, trying to bring some laughs. In the meantime, I hope all this social distancing saves a lot of lives. And I hope I can continue to pump out time suck here with Reverend Dr. Joe and the rest of the team. The secret suck, scared to death the entire time. We will give next month's Patreon donation to a charity benefiting workers affected by this coronavirus pandemic. We are working on other ways to raise money for those affected. Uh, You can check out the episode description to donate on this month's charity if you'd like, the Martin Richard Foundation, a.k.a. Team MR8. Also, while I can't tour, I do have a new stand-up special coming out to Apple TV, Amazon, On Demand Cable, and more on April 28th. And you can listen to the audio version for free, exclusively on Pandora starting April 1st. I think it's important, funny content for free, free new laughs. If you're not familiar with my other standup, I do have uh, six other albums on Pandora and Spotify, lots of stuff on YouTube, uh, two specials on Amazon Prime that members of Amazon Prime can uh, stream for free on that platform. Hours of additional laughs you can access. Uh, and, and, and again, for free. Also, uh, next time suck, I will put my spin on all of this, try and deliver a lot of pandemic info with some laughs. As I break down the current pandemic and compare it with the 1918 pandemic, Reverend Dr. Joe is trying to line up a solid expert for me to talk to about that, to share that information. And right now, to be clear, uh, yeah, my toxic thought states uh, in Philly and Hawaii uh, have been postponed for sure. Texas, Texas states likely postponed. Atlanta, uh, San Francisco, San Francisco definitely postponed. Atlanta, very likely. Uh, and, and hopefully I'll know more. Soon, this is all I know right now as I record this on Friday the 20th. Um, uh, so yeah, I'll let you know more as I know more uh last thing before we get into the meat of this episode during all this crazy, we do have I was so pumped about I still am but we do have one of the coolest posters and t-shirts we've we've done so far uh even if you're holding on to the money that you have right now, which I totally get, at least check out the artwork. You can do that for free at badmagicmerch.com Oh my God, it's a poster for a fake 80s action movie called Saving triple M. It's me holding the machine gun. Michael motherfucking McDonald is tied up. Reverend Dr. Joe Horsecock, Johnson Page. He got nasty, uh, evil guy scar on his face. I, th- I think he might be the bad guy of this movie. Queen of the Suck, Lindsay. Not sure if she's a good or bad guy. She might be held hostage by the Reverend Doctor. Uh, <laughs> it looks like an awesomely cheesy, real action movie I so wish was real right now. Uh, so, And that's all. So now let's get to Gangster and let's take our minds off of this bullshit and get in here. Uh, before we dig into our timeline going over Dillinger's life, uh, fir- first let's talk about the Great Depression, the backdrop where his crimes occurred. All his famous robberies were committed during a unique time in America's history uh, when there was, A, a little more incentive to commit bank robberies than there was at other times due to lack of jobs and over- overall financial uh, you know calamity, and B, a greater chance that your robberies would be well-received by the general public due to so many people's economic struggles, and C, you were—it it was, uh, you know, you were— you're going to be able to become better armed than the police officers who were chasing you. You get better cars, better guns, unique period for crime. Uh, One of these days, I'm sure, will suck the Great Depression itself. Such a crazy time. And unfortunately, uh, much more relevant now than it was a few weeks ago. A troublesome viral pathogen and fear around its spread wasn't the cause of the Great Depression. Its origins were much more complicated. Uh, The fundamental cause of the U.S. Great Depression was a decline in spending which led to a decline in production, which led to further decline in jobs, which led to further spending, which led to even less jobs. And well, you get it. The economic disaster began in August of 1929 and technically ended in March of 1933, but not really. Really, the economy didn't become truly healthy and prosperous again until the end of World War II, well over a decade later. At the peak of the depression, a full quarter of the nation were without jobs. Thousands were hobos eating cold chili out of cans and riding the rails. They will beat, behind the grind, rubbing their bloodshot blinkers, pies, shuttles, and peepers, hold out for a little hooch, a little bit of giggle juice, and a lot of sweet love from sweet mama, a dish, a liquor, a real hot tomato to get in through times of not enough cabbage, short on lettuce, not enough folding green to go around you, you dingy stool pigeon. So they talked back in. At the end of the roaring 20s, shit was looking great in the U.S. Sure, alcohol prohibition, which began in the 1920s, sucked. But those who really wanted to drink still knew where to find it. In the 20s, the U.S. boasted the largest economy in the world. With the destruction wrought by World War I, Europeans struggled while Americans flourished. For most of the 20s, the unemployment rate hovered around 4 or 5%. At times, it was lower than 3%, which is real good. America's biggest businesses earned record profits during the 20s. They reinvested much of those funds into expansion. The economy grew 42% during the 1920s. A lot of suds, a lot of salad, a lot of rhino, bacon, bread to go around. Even the crumbs were making that long green. The economy just kept expanding and expanding and expanding and expanding until by 1929, it had expanded to the bubble point. There suddenly wasn't enough qualified workers around to keep fueling further expansion. There weren't enough people to keep buying everything that was being made. A slowdown was inevitable. And making everything exponentially worse was a very uneven wealth distribution. Corporate profits skyrocketed, but wages for the common worker only increased incrementally widening the distribution of wealth. Does that shit all uh, sound a little terrifyingly familiar? CEOs building wealth that would last for generations, bottom workers barely paying their bills. The richest 1% of Americans owned a third of all of America's assets. So much wealth concentrated in the hands of so few is never good for economic growth. I don't know a lot about the economy, but I do know that. The wealthy tend to save money that would otherwise get funneled back into the economy if it were spread amongst the middle and the lower classes. Come 1929 working class, blue collar Americans couldn't keep spending to prop everything up. Many had already stretched their debt capacities by purchasing automobiles, household appliances on installment plans. Things were looking so good that when Herbert Hoover took over as U.S. president in 1929, he predicted the U.S. would soon see the day when poverty was completely eliminated. And that was because uh, he didn't understand the economy very well either. He was just a bit outside with that prediction. In 1925, the total value of the New York Stock Exchange was worth $27 billion. By September of 29, the figure skyrocketed to $87 billion. The average stockholder more than tripled the value of the stock portfolio he or she was lucky enough to possess. Millionaires were made virtually overnight, and that never continues just year after year after year. Stock fever swept the nation, people making that money. The stock market was a gambler's paradise. It was like one big craps table where the shooter just kept hitting their point over and over and the table just kept on winning on one long-ass roll. It was the best of times. Fueling the growth more than anything was the risky practice of buying stock on margin. People living beyond their means. That's always a fucking recipe for inevitable disaster. A margin purchase allows an investor to borrow money, typically as much as 75% of the purchase price, to buy a greater amount of stock than they have the funds for. Stockbrokers, even banks were funding reckless speculators. Banks loaning out money for people who have no fucking idea what they're doing to invest in the stock market. What could go wrong? And then on Wednesday, October 23rd, 1929, the market, which had been making everyone all this magic money, dipped just under 5%. Why? We'll have to save that for a later suck. I don't want to detour any further into complex economics here. All that matters here is that it dipped and that dip scared the shit out of everyone. Everyone was like, hey, what the Fuck. I thought we only won on the stock market. I bet all the money I had and frankly, a lot of money I didn't have on the stock market because everyone always wins, right guys? Come on, on, right guys, guys, come on, please. The Washington Post headline after this drop exclaimed, huge selling wave creates near panic as stocks collapse. Not good, really not good. The next day when the market opened, investors who'd been laying in bed thinking about, uh, you know, that headline the night before freaked the fuck out. Just about everyone wanted to sell, 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 sell their stocks immediately because they were afraid the market would spiral further downward and they'd lose even more than the 4.6% they'd lost the day before. And when everyone sells their stocks, the market continues to plummet. Investors are losing confidence and stock prices reflect that loss of confidence. Panic sets in, more panic. The sales drive down the value of the stocks, which creates more panic, which drives down sales further, which creates more panic, which drives things down further. You know, it's a continually declining stock prices, uh, stock price cycle. The three leading banks at the time were Morgan Bank, Chase National Bank, National City Bank in New York. They buy a whole shitload of stocks to attempt to restore confidence in the market and it doesn't work as well as they'd hoped. By the end of the day, the market dropped uh, 2%, right? Crisis averted, but not enough. It kind of holds steady for about three days. And then the market, you know, uh, after the weekend, Black Monday comes and it loses 13% of its value, just under 13%, really not good. Black Tuesday follows, it loses another almost 12%, super, super not good to lose roughly 25% of the total value in two days. And the market continues to slide and slide and slide. And by July of 1932, the Dow has lost almost 90% of its pre-cash value, almost maximum not good, almost complete economic collapse. For every dollar you'd invested in the market in the fall of 1929, you'd have 10 cents in the spring of 32 and the stock market crash touches off a chain of events that plunged the U.S. into its longest, deepest economic crisis in history. Events like unsecured banks going bankrupt and taking their customers' money with them. The FDIC, which guarantees that you won't lose your money if your bank goes bankrupt, was created as a result of this crisis. It didn't exist prior to 1933. It's kind of nice where as scary as things are right now theoretically, very, very, very unlikely that they will get anywhere remotely this scary because of measures set in place because of this collapse. Banks lost their ass in the market crash back in the Great Depression. People didn't just lose their jobs. They lost their savings when the banks failed. Almost 750 banks failed in the first 10 months of the 1930s alone. Roughly 4,000 banks failed in the decade, taking around $140 billion worth of their investors' money with them. And that is why people would find money hidden in the mattresses of their depression-era parents or grandparents after they died. That's why those people didn't trust the banks. Can you imagine that? How scary would that be if you've been saving money for years? You know, then you go to the bank to withdraw it and there's just a close sign, an out-of-business sign. The modern equivalent would be their website and app just doesn't show up anymore. My God. You go to open up Wells Fargo, Bank of America, whatever, and it just doesn't work. You go to the website. And it just has a, this site can't be reached error message. You called 800 number, you get a message saying the number is no longer in service. That is basically what happened, right? To thousands upon thousands, millions of Americans. And that is one of the reasons why many in the public loved it when Dillinger and gangsters like Dillinger got away with bank robberies. The banks in their, you know, minds had fucked them, had taken all their money when they went bankrupt. So fuck the banks. Someone who did not like Dillinger uh, someone who evolved American law enforcement to help catch Dillinger was J. Edgar Hoover, another suckworthy character. Hoover would modify the investigative techniques and increase the strength and power of the BOI, the Bureau of Investigation, predecessor to the FBI, uh, in order to catch Dillinger, his fellow gang members, and other members of organized crime. Crime. Uh, so let's talk about Hoover a bit. I know I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worth to mention again. J. Edgar Hoover came from a lot of money, which would influence public perception against him. As he chased Dillinger, who didn't come from any money. It was the rich kid federal government tyrant who'd been given all the opportunities versus the working man who had never been given any. J. Edgar's father, Rutherford G. Hoover, founded the now iconic Hoover Vacuum Company in Canton, Ohio in 1888 after buying the patent for the first modern upright vacuum from an Ohio janitor named Jackson Guggenheim. He was a marketing guru, and very quickly, everyone wanted a Hoover, and he made millions. And he had two sons. Future head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, and future U.S. President, Herbert Hoover. And they both grew up with a ton of vacuum money. Plenty of suck scratch, uh, cleaner checkers, crisp, clean, cordless, five spot lingots. And the advertising slogan, nothing sucks like a Hoover, that would be used throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Some people think it actually comes from people hating President Herbert Hoover, not from people liking Hoover vacuums because they blamed him for not handling the depression well. And then years later, the company tried to poke some fun at themselves and use that slogan to make a little money. Others think it comes from rumors that J. Edgar Hoover was gay and that the slogan originated as a homosexual slur against him. Still, others think that nothing sucks like a Hoover comes from rumors that J. Edgar and his brother Herbert teamed up together to kill original blonde bombshell film star Jean Harlow and then chopped up her remains, used several vacuums to suck her up, dumped the bloody vacuum bags in Lake Superior. That's what the legend is. Her remains were never found so fucking disgusting, such a brutal way to hide a body. And at least one person thinks that the phrase, nothing sucks like a Hoover, comes from a rumor that a young J. Edgar Hoover and young Herbert Hoover, his brother, both lost their penises in a tragic boys will be boys sexual experiment where they each put their penises in a different vacuum attachment at the same time in a masturbation race of sorts. And their father's machine was so powerful, it immediately ripped off both of their dicks. Nothing sucks like a Hoover. Oh, thank God. And that one person is me. And according to my wife, I'm mentally unstable. And there's a very good chance I just made up not only that last part, but everything else I just said about J. Edgar and Herbert Hoover. And they have zero connection to the Hoover vacuum family. Forget everything I just said about the Hoovers. Let me start over. Let me actually introduce you to J. Edgar Hoover after our depression talk. For real, as my daughter Monroe, Momo would say. Uh, Jay Edgar Hoover joined the Justice Department in 1917 at the age of just 22. And he was named director of the department's Bureau of Investigation just seven years later, 1924. He would remain in charge of the nation's largest crime-fighting investigative body for almost 50 years. In a way, Hoover is the closest thing America has ever had to a dictator. He'd become powerful enough to intimidate sitting presidents before his long, long reign would be over. When the Bureau reorganized as the Federal Bureau of Investigation in 1935, Hoover instituted strenuous agent-recruiting and advanced intelligence-gathering techniques. The National Criminal Fingerprint Database was organized under his leadership. During his tenure, he confronted gangsters, Nazis, communists. Later in his career, Hoover ordered uh, illegal surveillance against suspected enemies of the state and political opponents. Despite often receiving harsh criticism from the public, he remained director of the FBI until his death on May 2nd, 1972. Some speculate he remained in power for so long because he'd collected so much dirt on those who wanted to remove him from office. John Edgar Hoover was born January 1st, 1895 to Dickerson Naylor Hoover and Annie Marie Scheitlin Hoover, uh, two civil servants who worked for the US government. He grew up literally in the shadow of Washington, DC in a neighborhood just three blocks from Capitol Hill. Hoover was closest to his mom who served as the family's disciplinarian and moral guide. He lived with her until she died in 1938 when he was 43 years old. Highly competitive, Hoover worked to overcome a stuttering problem by learning to talk fast as a child. He joined the debate team in high school where he achieved notoriety as a quick-witted and aggressive debater. Wanting to enter politics, he worked for the Library of Congress after high school and attended night classes at George Washington University Law School. He earned his LLB, Bachelor of Laws, and LLM, Master of Laws, degrees in 1917 and that's a badass title master of laws if i had that degree man i'd want to be introduced like that you know just by by everyone everywhere have you met my friend dan uh sorry uh have you met my friend dan master of laws yes that same year during which uh, the united states entered world war 1 uh, world war 1 excuse me Hoover, master of laws, obtained a draft-exempt position with the Justice Department. His efficiency and conservatism soon drew the attention of Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, who appointed him to lead the General Intelligence Division, G.I.D., created to gather information on radical groups. During the war, uh, 1919, the G.I.D. conducted raids without search warrants, arrested hundreds of individuals from suspected radical groups. Though known to history as the Palmer Raids, Hoover was the real man behind these scenes, hundreds of suspected subversives were deported. Uh, ultimately, Palmer suffered politically from the backlash and was forced to resign, while the master of laws reputation remains stellar. Hoover, yet another guy who takes us right back to that argument about the federal government we've had since the Ruby Ridge suck. Really uh, first brought up in the Waco Branch Davidian cult suck, talking about the FBI raid in that compound. Is it ever okay for the federal government to circumvent the law? You know, to break the law for the greater good. Should they get to decide what the greater good is? Was it okay for Hoover to conduct illegal raids to get people out of the country to help the war effort? Does that make him a patriot or a tyrant or both? The founding fathers broke laws to create the U.S. Did Hoover break laws to protect the nation they'd created? It's such a tough argument. I get the side of nope, never okay. Never break the laws. That doesn't make the government, especially a law enforcement branch of the government, any better than the criminals they arrest. I get that. Also get the argument of sometimes special circumstances should allow for exemptions in the interest of saving American lives and during times of war in the interest of helping America win that war. In that case, there can be an argument made of infringing on the freedoms of a few to preserve the freedom of many. If life was only black and white. If only things were simple, but they aren't. Managing a nation of millions and millions of people who all have different beliefs and priorities, I imagine it's an incredibly complex task. Getting more complicated by the day right now Uh, Anyways, Hoover would often bend and break the law in his pursuit of criminals like John Dillinger, which would help fuel public support of Dillinger and gangsters like him and make a lot of the public hate Hoover. 1924, the 29-year-old Hoover was appointed the director of the Bureau of Investigation by President Calvin Coolidge. He He had long sought the position and accepted the appointment on the condition that the Bureau be completely divorced from politics and that the director report only to the attorney general. He didn't want to be caught up in fucking political party nonsense. As Director Hoover put into effect a number of institutional changes. He fired agents he considered political appointees or unqualified, love it, ordered background checks, interviews, physical tests for new agent applicants. He wanted his G-men, a term that technically means government men, but uh, came to really only apply to to, to FBI agents to be the best of the best. Depression era gangster, George Machine Gun Kelly may have coined this phrase when he shouted, don't shoot G-men, don't shoot when FBI agents arrested him when he was unarmed in 1933. Uh, Hoover obtained increased funding from Congress shortly after his appointment, instituted a technical laboratory that conducted scientific methods for gathering and analyzing evidence. During the 1930s, as we'll soon learn, all kinds of violent gangsters were wreaking fucking havoc across the Midwest. And they were successful largely because local police were outgunned and outmatched. They didn't have the gang's superior firepower. They didn't have their fast getaway cars. In some locations, they didn't have their numbers. Syndicated criminal organizations were able to run the show in a number of large cities, and Hoover was determined to stop them. He pressed for and received authority to have bureau agents go after these groups under federal interstate laws. Such notorious gangsters as John Dillinger, uh, George Machine Gun Kelly, they were hunted down. And Hoover would go on to do a lot more after the life of Dillinger. That's not really relevant to today's tale, so uh, we'll skip it here today. Uh, He shaped the FBI in his own image of discipline and patriotism. And again, this master of laws was tasked to chase today's subject and his gang down. Now, before we dig into Dillinger's life, let's look at some of his exciting peers and some of his predecessors. Get ready for tales of gangsters, grifters and malls, grabbing Chicago typewriters and drilling cinder dicks and filling G-man gumshoes and coppers with daylight. The roaring economic boom of the 20s, and yes, economic history buffs, I am aware there were a couple minor recessions that happened during the 20s. Uh, a surge of bank robberies across the U.S. began, which continued through the Great Depression of the 1930s. The Bureau of Investigation, formed in 1908, morphed into the Division of Investigation, excuse me, in 1933, morphed into the FBI in 1935. The same year, it became an independent service within the Department of Justice. Technically, the FBI never pursued Dillinger, and then it didn't exist by that name at that time, but it was the same guys. It's working under a different title. The same agency with various names became involved in the investigation to bank robberies and the apprehension of robbers in the early 30s. The severity of the roving criminal gangs in the Depression years led to bank robbery becoming a federal crime in 1934. Prior to that, their hands were tied. If somebody, you know, robbing a bunch of banks, it's up to the state's law enforcement officers, not the, not the feds. You know, before 1934, none of these banks were, were members of the Federal Reserve System. Prior to that action, a bank robber in Ohio, you know, could escape to a bordering state like Kentucky or Indiana and avoid pursuit or arrest. We went over a lot of that a long time ago in the Bonnie and Clyde suck, a couple years back. That's how they got away with so many of their crimes. You could rob a bank in, uh, say, Kansas City, Missouri, and you bounce across the bridge to Kansas City, Kansas, and you just lay low for a while. The good old days of brazen crime. Best time in American history to be an armed bank robber, 20s and early 30s. You could have a faster car than the coppers, bigger guns, more manpower, way easier to hide out. And thanks to prohibition, uh, there was more money in crime than ever. Man, did fucking prohibition ever backfire. Many people who had no interest in other illegal vices, like prostitution or gambling, still wanted to drink. There was a huge U.S. market for alcohol. And with all that money came the incentive to organize and grab a bigger slice of that big money pie. Gangsters became businessmen. Or at least hired businessmen to help run their expanding business operations. In the 20s, business was expanded in the U.S., both the legal and illegal kind. Organized crime grew like never before as they created bootleg distribution systems and supply lines. And these illegal enterprises needed to defend their organizations. Gangsters supplying speakeasies and underground gambling halls with hooch and jack juice for all the bent and canned blottos, was and boiled as an owl. They needed muscle. More and more men were becoming gangsters all the time. The stock market crash in 1929 and ensuing depression and lack of jobs only encouraged even more men and women to turn to lives of crime. And the laws of the time severely hindered law enforcement's efforts to catch them. Coppers who weren't on the take, many were. Uh, Coppers who hadn't been bought off by gangsters making all that fucking money during the golden era of crime couldn't even pursue criminals again across state lines. As in the earlier days in the West, when criminals such as Jesse James gained sympathy and even admiration of citizens who agreed with their activities, some of the famous robbers and murderers of these days, the days of roving gangs, you know, became uh, folk heroes amongst the downtrodden victims of the Depression. You know, in addition to Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, Pretty Boy Floyd, many others were celebrated. Dillinger in particular became popular with the public by committing daring bank robberies, where he uh, seemed to make great efforts not to harm bank employees or customers. That wasn't necessarily true. But that was the image that was portrayed. He he tried more than many of his contemporaries, but he wasn't a good guy, as we'll see here soon. Uh, Before we really get to know Dillinger, let's meet some of these peers, predecessors for context. Let's start with uh, some guys that I I really want to suck, which I know sounds weird for new listeners. Uh, So Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Man, uh, the hole in the wall pass in Wyoming. Was an easily defended, difficult to approach hideout for several criminal gangs that took sanctuary there from the 1860s through the early 20th century. Often several different gangs occupied it simultaneously. The most, notorious, no, excuse me, the most notorious gang that used the pass was the Wild Bunch, led by Robert Leroy Parker, AKA Butch Cassidy, and his partner, Harry Longabaugh, AKA the Sundance Kid. And after these guys, you know, we'll go to like Depression era times, but I just think this is a fun little predecessor. Uh, Some guys to mention. The Wild Bunch, great gang name, favored robbing trains, hoping to avoid shootouts in the aftermath of their robberies, Uh, but they weren't above a bank holdup. On September 19th, 1900, they committed one of their many holdups after members of the Wild Bunch entered the town of Winnemucca, Nevada. Oh man, Winnemucca, home of the Winner's Hotel and Casino, possibly the most depressing place I've ever performed stand up at. Holy shit. They still do comedy one night a week from what I understand. I played there two or three times shortly after starting out. It was fucking terrible each and every time. I've never heard a single comic that I know talk about, oh yeah, I had a great time there. Like, and they've been doing it for, for I don't know, 30 years. This place hasn't been remodeled uh, much since the 50s or 60s. I think the same people are gambling there that started gambling there in the 50s or 60s. Uh, Winnemucca, is a, it's a Wild West town that saw its best days, in my opinion, by far uh, during the Wild West, but it's still there. If you live there and you love it, I can... I don't get it, but God bless you. If someone gave me the choice between living in Winnemucca, Nevada for the rest of my life or spending 10 years in federal prison, I would fucking pick prison immediately. I would do my time and be happy that once I got out, I don't have to fucking go to Winnemucca. <laughs> anyways, back in 1900, sorry for that, I pissed out the two listeners. We have in Winnemucca. Uh, anyways, back in 1900, three men entered the thousand person dusty town. Actually right now with, with all the coronavirus, Winnemucca might be a great place to live because no one's been coming there for years. So it's kind of already been quarantined. It was, it's been quarantined since 19 fucking 85 in many ways. Anyways, back in 1900, three men entered the thousand person dusty town, made their way to the first national bank and demanded that the cashier, George Nixon, open the safe, give up the gold coins within. After the cashier reluctantly complied, the men made their escape with $32,640, or $32,640,000 worth of gold coins, uh, an amount that equates to just over a million in 2020 money. That's a true kind of Wild West movie type holdup. Bandits running off with a literal bag of gold worth roughly a million dollars. And that money was never recovered. Uh, Butch Cassidy may not have been uh, physically involved in that one. Historians think, though, he was at least, you know, uh, heavily involved in the planning of it. The outlaws were pursued by a hastily formed posse, later tracked by former suck subject the Pinkertons, but they were never captured for that crime or any other at least not uh, one in North America, and maybe not one at all. Butch and Sundance made their way to South America and continued robbing down there for years. Then they were shot and killed, supposedly on November 6th, near San Vicente in Southern Bolivia in a shootout with local police and some soldiers after robbing a courier, carrying payroll for a silver mine. Or were they? A lot of people think they ended up sneaking back into the U.S. after getting away with a number of South American holdups. Numerous family members of both men claimed to have visited with them years after their supposed deaths, for sure need a Butch Cassidy and Sundance, Sundance kid suck someday. And I need to finally watch that movie with Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Uh, during Dillinger's run, two other famous outlaws also became beloved by the public. Bonnie and Clyde. We sucked them again way back in episode 39. Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow were known nationwide for their notorious bank robberies and other crimes. They made headlines across America from 1932 to 1934 with their brazen exploits. On January 16th, 1934, five prisoners, including Raymond Hamilton, who were serving life sentences totaling more than 200 years, were liberated from the Eastham State Prison Farm at Waldo, Texas by Bonnie and Clyde. Two guards were shot by the escaping prisoners with automatic pistols that Clyde had two other outlaws, Floyd Hamilton and Jimmy Mullins, hide in a ditch. Those two guys had slipped through a barbed wire perimeter fence around the prison, hid an old inner tube under a drainage culvert. Inside that tube were two Colt forty-five automatics, and several clips of ammo. The next day, Floyd Hamilton visited his little brother in prison, uh, his brother Raymond, told him about the guns, other escape details. A few days later, another inmate, Aubrey Skelly, was able to retrieve the guns, sneak them into Joe Palmer's cell, who hid them in a mattress. And the next day, a heavy fog blanketed the prison grounds. Clyde borrowed two others hid in the woods near the edge of the country road just outside the prison. Clyde carried a Browning automatic rifle, capable of firing a 20-round clip of armor-piercing pier- shells in uh, less than three seconds. Clyde knew this prison. He'd already served time there, and he fucking hated it. He hated the guards. He said he'd seen prisoners beaten by guards, stuffed in tin sweatboxes under the blazing sun. He said he'd seen prisoners-, prisoners murdered by guards, sometimes for the $25 reward for the capture of escaped prisoners, other times for revenge. When he re- was released, he swore he'd come back and bust out some other prisoners and hopefully kill a few guards himself. At some point that morning, Joe Palmer shot a prison guard out in the yard and the break was on. After hearing Joe fire his shots, Clyde comes out of the tree line, opens fire on the guards with that automatic rifle. Bonnie sitting in the getaway car hits the horn and the chaos that follows two guards leave their posts fleeing for their lives and a bunch of dudes get out. Raymond and the other prisoners ran. Clyde covered the retreat with continued bursts of machine gun fire. He and Bonnie had done what they'd come to do. They busted prisoners out of the jail that Clyde so hated. During their violent career together, they are believed to have killed nine police officers and four civilians. The pair probably uh, robbed less than a dozen banks. They did rob from a lot of other places, mostly uh, gas stations and little, little kind of grocery stores. And then the two were killed in an ambush in Louisiana, May 23rd, 1934. Their car was turned into virtual Swiss cheese in a hail of gunfire. Another of Dillinger's contemporaries was a man people called Pretty Boy, who would become Hoover's public enemy number one after Dillinger's death. Charles Arthur Pretty Boy Floyd, gun-happy bank robber who, during his violent career, cultivated a favorable image with the general public by spreading rumors that, in the course of his robberies, he also destroyed mortgage documents, saving many people from foreclosing on their farms and homes. Uh, there's actually no evidence that he did that, but that was the that was the legend that spread. Pretty Boy Floyd was named by the FBI as being one of the gunmen involved in the infamous Kansas City massacre on June 17, 1933. A shootout in which three police officers and an FBI agent were killed when escorting Frank Nash, one of the Depression era's most successful bank robbers, during a change of custody after Nash had been arrested a few days prior in the popular underworld hideout of Hot Springs, Arkansas. Nash would die in this escape attempt. Unlikely that Floyd was actually involved, but J. Edgar Hoover used the event as propaganda to further the case of arming FBI agents and pursuing Floyd. Floyd did do a lot of bad shit. Floyd did at least kill three police officers and several other underworld figures, including bootleggers, uh, which indicates he may have supplemented his income from bank robberies by also serving as a hitman for various organized crime figures. Floyd grew up in a small town in Oklahoma when it became impossible to operate a small farm in the drought conditions of the late 20s. Floyd tried his hand at bank robbery. He quickly got you know, caught for robbing a St. Louis payroll delivery and found himself in a Missouri prison. After being paroled in 1929 at the age of 25, he learned that a man named Jim Mills had shot his father to death. Mills had been acquitted of the charges. And then right after Floyd got out of prison, uh, this guy disappeared forever. He shows up in the same town as Mills and uh, Mills is gone. Floyd biographers are, you know, pretty sure that he killed the man who killed his father. Then he moves to Kansas City. And along with a couple of friends he'd met in prison, starts robbing banks in Missouri and Ohio. He gets caught again. He gets sentenced to 12 to 15 years in Ohio. On the way to prison, on the prison transport train, he kicks out a fucking window and just jumps off. And, and, and it gets away. Amazing how many stories there are of dudes breaking out of prison. We're going to have uh, some great ones later in this episode. Man, I, I know these weren't good dudes, but I love a fucking prison break tale for whatever reason. I mean, if you were on a train and you're heading to prison and you might not get out in like 15 years, how amazing would it feel to kick the window out, jump, survive, run off, to actually pull off that escape, Man, talk about turning your day around. One minute, you're like, fuck, i am been in fucking prison 15 years for the prime of my life. And then like 15 minutes later, you're just running through a field. Getting away with it. Floyd made it to Toledo where he hooked up with Bill the Killer Miller. That's a solid outlaw name. That dude lucked out in the last name department with Miller. Probably wouldn't have had a cool, tough nickname if his last name was like Walker or Baker, you know? Bill the Stalker Walker. That's not good. Bill the Faker Baker. That's that's not nearly as strong. Hey, 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 guys. Uh, Baker just screamed. He's, he's rolling around. I think he's been shot. No, nah, he's fine, kid. He does that every gunfight right after the first shot's fired. That's a classic Faker Baker move. Uh, he once limped for two weeks, said he'd been shot in the leg. All that had really been done to him was uh, he, he kind of was trying to clip his dang toenails and uh, cut him a bit short. Classic Faker Baker. Uh, Pretty Boy Floyd. Killer Miller, they went on a crime spree across several states. They also started dating. This is ridiculous. They started dating two sisters. Uh, They'd met along the way during their crime spree. One of them is married, and the other is dating that man's brother when they meet. And then (laughs) Floyd, it's not funny, but Floyd and Killer Miller, they're like, well, you know, we want to date these girls. And these guys are kind of in the way, so they just fucking killed them. They just killed both those dudes and just took their girls. Uh, Floyd would rob more than 30 banks, kill at least 10 men during his criminal career before he himself was gunned down in in an Ohio field on the night of October 22nd, 1934, just outside of East Liverpool, little town of 11,000 that borders Pennsylvania and West Virginia. This guy, he he raised a lot of hell for a dude who died at 30. Babyface Nelson, uh, another famous gangster who committed a number of robberies with Dillinger, was a member of his gang for a time. So we'll talk more about Nelson in a bit, but let's talk about him a bit now. This guy is a fucking lunatic. He was a psychopath. In the late 1920s, Lester Gillis, who used the alias George Nelson, was developing a budding criminal career by performing home invasions, stealing cash, jewelry, furs, robbing stores, robbing taverns. He robbed his first bank in April of 1930, uh, another in October of that year, and in Chicago. And then he even robbed jewelry from the mayor of Chicago's wife. And then she saw him, and she's the one who labeled him as having a baby face. And then baby face Nelson stuck in the press, a nickname that he hated. That no one called him to his face. Nelson was especially violent. He committed his first known murder during a botched tavern robbery. By 1932, Nelson had been caught, convicted, and sentenced to prison. And then he escaped. All these guys escaped. Escaped during a prison transfer in 1932. Uh, Breaking out of the joint was apparently a rite of passage with these dudes. The following year, he robs a bank in Grand Haven, Michigan. Uh, Nelson decides to form and run his own gang of bank robbers in 1933. On October 3rd, they robbed the First National Bank of Brainerd, Minnesota, during which Nelson, well, I, I guess he says he forms his own. He, it, really, it really was Dillinger's gang. So we'll talk about this a little more in a bit. But he, he but he's, I don't know, maybe like a co-leader. And uh, during this bank robbery, he just randomly starts uh, firing his submachine gun at bystanders on the street but Just because he's fucking just crazy. Like even amongst other notorious gangsters. And he was laughing while he was doing it. It was like out of a movie. Just, <laughs> just spraying people with bullets just random people for no like had helped help the robbery not at all uh he had a reputation for being particularly violent and unstable in march 1934 he partnered with dillinger uh a, on another job to rob the security national bank in sioux falls followed a week later by the first national bank in mason city iowa and after pretty boy floyd was killed nelson inherited the designation of public enemy number one you know Uh, A little while later, Nelson remained on the run with his wife, usually staying at auto camps, which were common in the thirties. Auto camps were basically like the precursor to RV parks and, uh, you know, motels, big lots where people just parked their car, set up a little tent and hang out for a while. Cheaper than a motel, uh, easier for a gangster to slip in and out of. Nelson was finally cornered and killed by FBI agents in November of 1934 in a gun battle in which two FBI agents are also killed. Another insane story. The gun battle begins because babyface Nelson chases down the FBI officers after spotting them on the highway. How fucking insane is that? They don't chase him down, he chases them down. They try to flee from him. <laughs> Two FBI agents are like, get the fuck, that's fucking babyface Nelson, get out of here. Before the gun battle, Nelson's speeding down the highway, chasing the agents, shooting at him. Uh, dude is insane, tough as fuck, survived the confrontation, uh, only to die of his wounds at a safe house a short time later. He would be a great suck. Okay, one more before we get into Dillinger. Maybe the most prolific bandit active at the time of Dillinger, Willie Sutton. He'd be active for a long time after Dillinger. In 1950, he'd be named the FBI's newly created 10 Most Wanted Fugitives. Dude had been robbing banks for over 30 years by that time. He spent four decades roughly robbing over 100 banks, stealing around $2 million. And he acquired two nicknames, the actor and slick Willie, for his ingenuity in executing or executing robberies in various disguises. Fond of expensive clothes, Sutton was described as being an immaculate dresser, known to be a gentleman, carried himself very differently than some of his, uh, you know, uh, hothead peers I've just talked about. People present at his robberies said he was uh, quite polite. One victim of one of his robberies said that watching one of Sutton's robberies was like being at the movies, except that the usher just happened to have a gun. When asked why he robbed banks, Sutton supposedly famously said because that's where the money is. Uh, he would later claim that he'd never said that. He said that a reporter wrote that, attributed to him to to sell some papers. After denying that quote, uh, he did say why he did it. He said, why do I rob banks? Because I enjoyed it. (laughs) Or why did I rob banks? Because I enjoyed it. I loved it. I was more alive when I was inside a bank robbing it than at any other time in my life. I enjoyed everything about it so much that one or two weeks later, I'd be out looking for the next job. But to me, the money was the chips. That's all. He just, he fucking did it mostly just because he disliked it. I love the honesty there. Nah, it's a fucking great time. It's super fun. Sutton once robbed a Broadway jewelry store uh, in broad daylight, impersonating a post office uh, a messenger. Uh, Sutton's other disguises included a policeman, uh, maintenance man. He usually would arrive at banks or stores slightly before they open for the day. Uh, like these other dudes, he also knew how to get out of jail. In 1931, in June, he was sent to prison on charges of assault and robbery. He was sentenced to 30 years. And then he committed one of three prison escapes Uh, scaled the prison wall on two nine-foot sections of ladder that he joined together. Oh, my God. Uh, Yeah, and all these guys, in addition to Dillinger, led to the FBI increasing their powers to track them down and arrest them. There were so many prison escapes, so many brazen robberies. Ah, there's never been a criminal era comparable to there since the 1930s, and there there probably won't be. It was a different time and, and maybe the best time in America for crime. So now let's dig into Dillinger. After a quick break, please listen and support these sponsors uh, as it helps support the show, helps us to continue to get sponsors. Use our discount codes if you want any of these deals so they know that Time Sucks sent you their way. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless? A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time, but why time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour, but what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babel's quick 10 minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20 day money back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto, pargo rojo frito gustaria un poco de de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at Babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now let's dig into today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. On June 22nd, 1903, John Herbert Dillinger is born in the near east side Oak Hill neighborhood of Indianapolis, Indiana. His family had ended up in Indianapolis after his paternal grandfather immigrated there from France about a decade after the U.S. Civil War. Big city kid. 1903, Indianapolis was bigger than Los Angeles, Nashville, Denver, Seattle, many more other cities, had over 170,000 people in it. Very big city for the time. He's the younger of two children born to grocer, John Wilson Dillinger and Mary Ellen Molly Lancaster, who had been married August 23rd, 1887 in Marion County, Indiana. They both worked at the family grocery store not far from their home that John Wilson's father had opened up when he came over from France. Dillinger's older sister, uh, Audrey, was born 14 years earlier on March 6, 1889. So he's almost an only child. And according to legend, his family knew he was a boy right away. They didn't have ultrasounds back then to determine the sex of the baby pre-birth. But if uh, legends are true, Dillinger's mom may have uh, had a penis herself for a while for at least the duration of her third trimester because his huge wean wouldn't have been able to fit in her uterus. <laughs> there seriously are a ton of legends out there about how endowed Dillinger was. We're going to get to the bottom of all this right now. Because this is, a, if you look up Dillinger stuff, it comes it's ridiculous. It comes up all the time. One legend says that the dude had a 12 inch horse cock, something even Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley would be envious of, uh, especially back when he was known as micropene, because the legend says that it was 12 inches when limp, 12 inches limp, Erect. It was supposed to be 22 inches, 22 inches. That is fucking absurd. From what I've like researched, I did way more research than I ever did to about this. I just was like, what? Like it would be the biggest known human penis in history. Surprisingly, the Guinness Book of World Records does not include, I look so, so hard, pun not intended, uh, for the record for the longest human penis. My, I think why they don't have it in Guinness is I'm just guessing is because they would have to send an official representative of the company to measure it. And that's kind of, you know, uncomfortable to ask somebody like, hey, you got to go measure this guy's hard dick. Uh, For reference on dick size, famous porn star, Ron, the hedgehog, Jeremy claims to have a nine and a half inch dick. That's when hard, right? Just under 10 inches. Former suck subject, John Holmes, star of the Wonderland murders. Right? One of the most famous porn stars of all time, known for having one of the biggest dicks in the history of the business, never officially measured. Holmes' first wife recalled him claiming it to be 10 inches when he first measured it himself. Holmes uh, himself once claimed his penis to be 15 inches long. He must have been measuring from his butthole. Uh, his manager said, I saw John measure himself several times. It was 13 and a half inches. A lot of uh, uh, you know variations on how people are measuring stuff. Are you going from the back of the ball sack? Are you going from the, from the butthole? Are you going from the shaft where it hits the, uh, the, the lower groin? <laughs> so, so that's, you know, thir- and, he, and they're saying 22 with Dillinger. Oh my God. 13 and a half inches is the supposed length of Jonah Falcon's dick. If you Google who has the biggest dick ever, he's the guy who comes up, at least when I Googled it, Jonah Falcon. He's a 49 year old New Yorker, not an adult film star. He once appeared on the Daily Show talking about it. He's appeared on a TLC show called Strange Sex. He says he has 13 and a 13 half inch dick. Uh, a 56-year-old Mexican man, Roberto Esquivel Cabrera, made some media rounds, primarily in the UK tabloids a couple of years ago when he started claiming to have a nearly 19-inch dick. There's a bunch of weird fucking pictures of him where it's not quite porn because he's basically like wearing a sock on his dick and it hangs well below his knees. <laughs> and some think that John Dillinger's dick was three inches longer than that. Dillinger was 5'7". If this is true, his dick would almost be tapping the top of his boots. Uh, other rumors suggest it was 15 inches or 13 or 12. Get out of here. I did find out where all these legend originated. This is hilarious to me. They all originate from, from like a, just a weird photo taken shortly after he was killed at the Cook County Morgue. After Dillinger was shot and killed in Chicago, he was taken to the morgue. But before he was buried, random people were allowed to pose for pictures like next to his body, it was draped over, like a sheet draped over him. They they would do stuff like this all the time. Like in some ways, we meat sacks used to be much darker. I've talked about this before, much darker than we are now. Now we listen to true crime podcasts and watch documentaries. You know, it wasn't that long ago, we were posing, smiling next to dead bodies. Dillinger's right arm was draped over his body underneath the sheet, resting across his waist. In the photo, the way the sheet sticks up above his groin, it's his arm. It's his stiff rigor mortis arm But it looks like he died with the biggest fucking boner anyone is like cartoonish. Like he had like an elephant cock on a smaller man's body. (laughs) And so this rumor gets spread by the 1960s. It had become a true urban legend in America, one known to almost every American adolescent. I would compare it for people around my age. It was the equivalent of the gerbil getting stuck in actor Richard Gere's ass. I heard about that when I was a kid. Everybody fucking heard about that, right? It, that was it. Was that of the '60s and earlier, and the '50s and the '40s? Everyone thought that John or the John Dillinger had a huge, huge dick. And then another rumor spread about it uh, that it, that his Johnson had been cut off, preserved in a jar of formaldehyde, and stored at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. Not true. They don't just have his uh, cr- uh, gangster's dick in a jar. The Smithsonian. This rumor was so persistent. The Smithsonian got so fuck of being, got so fucking sick of being asked questions about it. They publicly addressed it. They publicly were like, listen, we don't have a stick in a jar. Stop asking us about it. Uh, there was another rumor that Dillinger's dick sat atop J. Edgar Hoover's desk at the FBI. Also highly unlikely to be true. The FBI actually publicly addressed this as well because they were sick of people asking about it. <laughs> like what? I mean, and that's so crazy. Can you imagine if one of our government leaders just had a dude's dick in a jar on their desk, like, like where they worked on Capitol Hill, but why, come on, think what you want about any number of current politicians being crazy, but that, that is w- w- much further. I uh, just make yourself at home. Uh, you can set your drink right. Th- oh God, uh, I'm sorry. Let me move that. I haven't been able to decide where to, where to keep this dick in a jar. So, uh, just rest on my desk where, you know, me and everyone I, I meet with in here can, can take a good look at it. I am, uh, I am a master of laws, and you will respect my dick in a jar. Uh, Yeah, and the FBI addressed that, like I said. How awkward. Uh, We here at the FBI just want the American public to know that our director does not, in fact, have John Dillinger's erect penis in a jar on his desk. Thank you for your time. Uh, Oh, and before I move on, Richard Gere (laughs) never had a gerbil stuck in his ass. I finally looked into that. (laughs) A gerbil that he had put up there in, in some bizarre sexual bestiality, gerbiling, it's called, encounter. This rumor started after an anonymous practical jokester faxed a phony press release throughout the Hollywood community from the Association of the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, stating that the star of Pretty Woman was gonna be in a lot of trouble for abusing said gerbil. And who does gear think this anonymous jokester was? Sylvester Stallone, Sly Stallone. Yes, the Rocky and Rambo star. Stallone, this is such a ridiculous wormhole I got stuck in. Stallone and Gear fought on the set of the 1974 film, The Lords of Flatbush. The director had to fire one of them. It got that contentious, he fired Gear. Stallone later said in a 2006 interview that Gear still hates him for this. Gear said in an interview that Stallone spread that gerbil rumor, which Stallone denies. Stallone said that Gear was a huge asshole on the set of that movie. And, uh, and if he did get him fired for being a dick and, and he did spread that rumor about the gerbil that many believe to this day, he has to be pretty proud of himself. I would be. Oh my God. And, and I follow the 73-year-old Stallone on Instagram and that dude cracks me the fuck. I love that dude. His last film, Rambo Last Blood, made, uh, grossed over 90 million at the box office uh, for a profit of over 40 million. And that's just at the box office. Richard Gere's latest film, Three Christ, made a little under $38,000 total at the box office. It was beyond a flop. So if Stallone has been in some sort of unacknowledged competition with gear, he's, he's fucking crushing him right now. Okay. So that little detour is over. Gear never got caught with a gerbil in his ass. He never had, that doesn't even happen. The whole concept of gerbiling. I also got fucking sucked into that wormhole. It's a complete urban legend. There are no legitimate accounts, no proof in any credible publication In a number of like medical publications. Like the, the, the legend was so persistent. They're like, does that even happen? No. There's no record of it ever happening to anyone getting a gerbil in their ass. So, no one knows how big Dillinger's dick was. No one, and and Richard Gere didn't do that. Total rumor and gossip. Sorry for those of you who were uh, sure he was packing some serious heat down there, if that was important to you as far as his legend. And maybe he was. We just don't know anything about his penis. He he could have whatever kind of dick you want him to have, potentially. Uh, Anyway, uh, that is the end of today's Time Suck Timeline. Good job, soldier. Get the fuck out of here. That's not the end. That will be terrible. Yeah, that would be when new listeners would just hit stop and be like, what the? Why does anyone like this podcast? Fuck this show. Now, back to his bio. John's father, John Wilson Dillinger, was born July 2nd, 1864, owned a small grocery store in the cities. I've said he was a religious man. Uh, although he didn't go to church a lot when John was growing up in his younger years, uh, he reportedly alternated between abusing and spoiling his son. Uh, you know, beating him, giving him money for treats, locking him in the house, and allowing him to stay out all night. It was very back and forth. And uh John's father, John Wilson, had a 57-inch penis. Uh they called him pogo stick. Uh, that, uh of course that's not true. That'd be a super painful pogo stick. Uh Dillinger's mother died of a stroke in 1907, just before his fourth birthday, when she was only 36 years old, uh, killed by her husband's penis, of course. Uh no, but she did die, and that is young. Man, to be dying of a stroke, terrifying. Later that year, Uh, His now 18-year-old sister, Audrey, gets married to Emmett Fred Hancock. Didn't make up that last name, just happens to play into what we're talking about. Uh, They'd begun dating two years earlier, already had a child together. They had another child in 1908, a child who died shortly after birth. They'd have seven more kids together and five would live. Man, back when tragedy was way too common. Uh, Little Dillinger around this time is cared for by his older sister and her husband who live with John's dad. Not a ton is known about young pre grade school Dillinger. Uh, by all accounts, he was a happy toddler. Pictures show a grinning kid who liked to ride carts and wagons, pedal tricycles, and play outside. Four years later, May 23rd, 1912, his father, Dillinger's father, remarries in Morgan County to Elizabeth Lizzie Fields. Randomly, John Sr. had met Lizzie at the funeral of his own father earlier that same year. So John Jr. is now nine. After this marriage, his sister Audrey and husband Fred move out, get a place just a few blocks away, a place actually right next to the family grocery store. Initially, Dillinger not happy about all this. He was jealous and disliked his stepmom, but reportedly he eventually came to love her. And more weird rumors here. On almost every article or like list verse type thing about John Dillinger, there are unsubstantiated rumors, uh, you know, in so many sources that John would go go on to have a three-year love affair with his stepmom. I don't believe these for a second. No legitimate biographer gives any credence to this. Lizzie, 32, when she married John Sr., would have three children with him, a son and two daughters, half brother, half sister to Dillinger, baby Hubert, born in 1913, sister Doris, born in 1917, brother Francis, born in 1922. And again, nothing credible, suggests he had a love affair with his stepmom. And I honestly think that this nonsense is tied to the myth of his huge penis. You know, this, this mythology of his dick was just so big that no one could resist it, not even stepmoms. He was rumored to have sex with all kinds of women and almost all the rumors seem to be nonsense. So weird. And uh, and you know what? I, I understand it more than I'd care to, to be totally honest. I won't confirm it. I will not public, publicly measure it. I'm not going to call the people at the Guinness Book of World Records, but I do have a 67 inch penis and that's limp. 67 inches limp. I have been rumored to have sex with, uh, to have, uh, to have had sex, excuse me, with somewhere between two. I just get worked up talking about this because I get so tired of all the fucking questions. But there's rumors out there about me having sex with somewhere between two and three million women and it's fucking bullshit. Gosh gosh dang. No, no one has had sex with, you know, two to three million women. I had sex with, before I met my wife, 300,000 women tops. And I only got to that crazy number because for several years, I I would have sex with no less than 10 women at a time. Uh, I'd give ladies a ride on the Cummins Express. That's (laughs) that's what I called it, you know? After I'd get undressed, I'd say, choo-choo, all aboard, and then one woman would just sit on the tip, which is the size of an uh, above-average fellow's entire penis. And then nine to fifteen other women would sit on top of the shaft, kind of like people sitting in a row on a log, you know. And and once the woman at the end was done, she would scoot off. And then I would say, "Next stop, Lucy, or whatever that woman's name is." choo choo! All aboard! And then the next woman would enjoy the tip. And when you know, we'd go on like that over and over. And when everyone was done, I I used to think this was kind of funny. I used to like to say. We've arrived at our last stop for the evening. I hope you all enjoyed your ride on the Cummins Express. Now get out. Choo-choo! So, you know, you, you get it. But these days, I usually just sling it up and over my shoulder, wrap it around my waist, you know, tie it up and uh, go about my day. No big, uh, no big whoops. So anyway, anywho, enough about my 67-inch penis. Back to Dillinger's childhood. Shortly after John turned 10 in 1913, they started running. I just, <laughs> sorry, I know this is stupid, but I imagine someone listening to this who has no sense of absurdity. Like, like a really straight-less per- person who just wants the facts and doesn't get humor, and they're just like, just listen to all that, being like, no, fuck, get, get the fuck out of here. No way. Come on. There's nothing never happened. Research in 67 is pain as well. Shortly after John turned 10 in 1913, he started running away from home, although he wouldn't claim to be angry at his father or his stepmom. He did start getting into a lot of trouble. Uh, why? Who knows? Some people just have a more rebellious nature than others. Maybe he felt like an outsider at home where he was the only child born to his mom who had died. Maybe he was angry at the world about that. Maybe from an early age, he just seemed to enjoy raising hell. It was just in his nature, on the nature versus nurture you know, spectrum. Uh, he once talked some other kids from the neighborhood into getting a rope and tying one end to a neighbor's fence and the other end to a stopped streetcar. And when the streetcar took off, it of course destroyed his neighbor's fence and the flower bed right behind it. He got caught by his dad who reportedly told him uh, according to an interview years later. What if I did wreck his roses? that old bastard's mean anyhow? <laughs> John Sr. whooped his son's ass for that answer. He said, I yanked him into the kitchen, licked him. I turned him across my knee and wailed away till my hand stung, but he didn't cry. He just got up and glared at me and he stomped out. All at once, I wasn't mad anymore. I was sick and afraid that my boy would go wrong. Tough little bastard. Reminds me of my daughter Monroe. I could see her having that reaction if I tried giving her a spanking now. And he did things like this often. He was, he was like a... He was a very mischievous Dennis the Menace type kid, maybe a little, maybe a little meaner. A uh, teacher at John's in grade school, Elizabeth O'Meara, would later say that the future bank robber John never stole from her in class, although many other kids did. She said that uh, he never cared much about his lessons uh, unless they were mechanical, and he did get in trouble for that. But she she said he wasn't a bad kid. She said he was a prankster and that she found his pranks quite amusing and creative. I, I like, I like Miss O'Meara. Uh, a girl John went to school with, Violet Lively, remembered him differently, though, saying years later that John scared her. She said he sneered instead of he smiled. He, he was a bully, said he and her brother used to get into fights and, his, and you know, uh, John would beat her brother's ass, said, uh, you know, he beat up her brother numerous times and bad enough that her mom visited John Sr., told him that she was going to pursue criminal charges if young Dillinger, uh, you know, beat her son up again. And then supposedly Dillinger's dad told her, Mrs. Lively, if you think that will do any good, go right ahead for I have tried everything. He was that kid. <laughs> John's former Sunday school teacher, a woman named Ella Ellsbury, thought John was mischievous but polite. She remembered him causing trouble with other boys, but that he also always tipped his hat to her. I love that. The, yeah, sure. I mean, he's, you know, he's, you know, he's causing trouble, but he tipped his, his hat to me. So I think he was good. Uh, the older he got, the more trouble he caused. As he grew into a teenager, he got into more fights, committed various petty crimes, started staying out all night at parties, uh, he once crashed an unattended switch engine into a line of coal cars just for a laugh. Just thought it'd be funny. I kind of love this. I kind of love Young Dillinger. I'm not gonna lie to you. He also stole whiskey from an unattended boxcar and allegedly got his uh, got a bunch of girls drunk and uh, you know uh, started showing up to school drunk. So he's you know he's fooling around. He's causing all kinds of mayhem. Uh, he even got a childhood gang together. He dubbed the Dirty Dozen, and they would ter- <laughs> Jesus Christ. They would terrorize younger children, vandalize, and steal. Hearing the nickname Jackrabbit uh, later for how spry he was, how nimbly he would evade police, Dillinger was apparently also a pretty decent baseball player, solid second baseman a shortstop. So that's that's a lot about his youth there. 1919, Prohibition begins. The Eighteenth Amendment is ratified by 36 states, making it illegal to produce, transport, or sell alcohol. This, of course, unleashes you know the black market, organized crime, floodgates, and an era of lawlessness. And this climate would soon provide the perfect climate for John to begin his criminal career in earnest. He drops out of high school the same year against his dad's advice at the age of 16, begins working at a factory, making plywood. He's considered a hard worker, but he doesn't stay long. Gets a better job as a runner for the Indianapolis Board of Trade. Doesn't stay long there either. Gets a better job again, right? It's the 20s, there's a lot of jobs. Uh, gets a job as a mechanic at a machine shop south of Indianapolis. James P. Burcham's Reliance Specialty Company. He'd work here off and on for four years. He'd bounce out for a while, he'd come back and work for a while. Uh, You know, he was a sporadic worker, but he was really good mechanically. And so even though he wasn't reliable, they kept hiring him back. 1920, when Dillinger was 17, his father decides to sell the grocery store and move the family to a 62 acre farm just outside of Mooresville, his wife's hometown of 1,800 people, almost exactly 20 miles from downtown Indy. He hopes this move would help his son, uh, you know, keep from getting into further trouble. It does not. John Sr. and Dillinger's stepmom, Lizzie, also get reacquainted with Lizzie's childhood faith and start regularly attending a Quaker church in Mooresville. Get getting much more religious. Dillinger doesn't care for any of this. He doesn't like it. Doesn't like all the church going. Doesn't like the, the the move to the country. He likes the city. He does start going hunting in the woods on a regular basis and gets a reputation for being a really good shot. Getting handy with firearms will help him later. It'll serve him well in his criminal career. Uh, he also plays a decent amount of baseball for the Mooresville Athletic Club. He gets a motorcycle, gets a car, a Chevy, Quickly gets a speeding ticket, raced in Indianapolis, gets known for having a real heavy foot. He's driving in and out of town often, you know, both for work at the machine shop and to visit friends, visit his sister, Audrey. Audrey's daughter, daughter, Mary, his niece, who was nine when John was 16, remembers him being a fantastic uncle. She'd later say he was generous to a fault and had a fantastic smile. They'd play catch, you know, with the baseball. He'd buy her bubble gum and hang out. 1923, 20, uh, 20-year-old Dillinger becomes obsessed with reading books about old West outlaw, former suck subject Jesse James and the James Younger gang. A friend of Dillinger at the time, Delbert Hobson, said Dillinger loved tales of James' courage and daring while he was also chivalrous to women and children. He said that Dillinger would later try to emulate that in his own criminal career. Uh, Dillinger also started dressing like the gangsters of his day, tilting his hat off to one side, walking with the swagger. Friends noticed he starts to talk tough taking on the air of being a bit of a hoodlum. And he also falls in love in 1923, Frances Marguerite Thornton, the 18-year-old beautiful stepdaughter of his uncle, technically his first cousin, but, but his first step cousin in a time when that wasn't weird at all. Uh, he courted her for a great deal in 1923. They wanted to get married, but both Dillinger's dad and Francis's father were against it. They wanted John Jr. to grow up a bit first, get a little more established, get a decent, steady job, hold it for a while. He seemed too wild to get married. Dillinger disagreed, you know, of course, uh, pushes harder to get married and then Francis's father outright forbids it. You will not marry my daughter. Dillinger, pissed, breaks up with Francis over this. And then in an act of careless anger on a warm July night, he puts a revolver in his pocket, steals an Overland sedan in Mooresville, drives it into downtown Indy, parks it on the circle beneath the Soldiers and Sailors Monument around midnight, starts walking around looking for God knows what, looking for trouble with a pistol in his pocket. Two police officers think he's up to no good. They're on patrol. They start talking to him. He tells them he driven in from Mooresville. They notice that there's a gun in his pocket, right? So they're like, nope, all right, you're going to come in for further questioning." They start to walk into a local police station. He slips away, starts running. They end up firing seven shots at him as he runs away. He runs until he makes it to a bar and he hides inside. And that night while hiding, he decides he's going to join the Navy to get out of town in case they pin him to that stolen car. Next morning, he gets up, makes his way to the federal building in Indy, signs up. The recruiters list him as uh, 5'7", 155 pounds, brown hair, blue eyes, ruddy complexion, 20-20 vision, great hearing, 35-inch chest, expands to 38, 47-inch dick limp that could expand to 128 inches uh, firm. So they decide to use him as a weapon in the war. Now, uh, he had a pretty average build. Uh, He shipped out almost immediately, uh, makes it to the Great Lakes Training Station four days later. After letting his sister know that he's joined the Navy, you know, she she relays the word to the rest of his family. He completes basic training on October 4th, and then he's posted on off the East Coast on the now famous USS Utah, a ship that was sunk during the 1941 Pearl Harbor attacks. And he spent his time, and he didn't enjoy his time. He spent his time on board shoveling coal into the ship's huge boilers. After 22 days of nonstop, hot, hard labor, he jumps ship in Boston and he uses his uh his dick as a propeller of sorts. And he just, he was uh, he was really good at swimming. He just like spins it and just it zips him right on into the shore. Uh, no, but he does, he does jump ship in Boston and he goes uh, AWOL. He comes back after just a day. He's punished with an $18 fine, almost a month's pay at the time. He's sent to the brig for 10 days where he's only given bread to eat, and water to drink. When he doesn't report properly for this punishment, he has five days of solitary confinement added to his sentence, pisses him off a little more. And then after he gets back uh, out of this, he gets sent back to shoveling coal and he gets really fucking pissed. And now he goes AWOL for real. After just a few weeks, he just fucking bounces and never comes back. He leaves December 4th, 1923. And they uh, list him as a deserter and they put a $50 bounty on his head and they never catch him for this. And then no one knows what he did for the next three months. He just roves the countryside for the next three months. In March of 1924, he resurfaces in Mooresville where he tells everyone he'd he'd been honorably discharged from the Navy. Didn't work out, but I had a great time. Uh, And then he returns, you know, um, or after he returns to Mooresville, sorry, he also meets 17-year-old Beryl Ethel Hovius, and apparently they hit shit off quick. Whatever she had, he really wanted because they get married roughly three weeks after first laying eyes on one another. Hey, to On April 12th, they married Martinsville, little town 15 miles south of Mooresville, birthplace of legendary country singer Bobby Helms. You love Bobby Helms. Have you ever heard of Bobby Helms? No? Are you sure? Think about it. Bobby Helms. I bet you have. Bobby Helms is the guy who wrote and recorded Jingle Bell Rock in 1957. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock. Jingle bells swing and jingle bells ring. Snowing and blowing the bushels of fun. Now the jingle hop has begun. Fuck yeah, bro! You fucking know that song. You've heard it. It makes you Christmas happy oh sorry that is a classic though uh Dillinger attempted to settle down and with no job or income the young newlyweds moved into Dillinger's father's farmhouse within a few weeks of his wedding he's arrested for stealing several chickens <laughs> his criminal exploits start you know they start low uh, though his father is able to work out a deal to keep the case out of court you know sue things over with the chicken farmer uh, it does little to help his relationship with his father Dillinger and Beryl move out of the cramped bedroom into Beryl's parents home in Martinsville Indiana He gets a job there at an upholstery shop that he doesn't keep very long. Soon after that, the the couple moves into a little apartment just outside Martinsville's uh, town square. Uh, He has difficulty difficulty holding down a steady job, folks on a marriage life. He's always out at the bars, hanging out doing God knows what. Weird, weird that getting married three weeks after meeting someone might not be the greatest decision you could make. Uh, In Martinsville, he also joins a local baseball team called The Athletics. And John and his wife, Beryl, become good friends with another baseball team player named William Edgar Singleton. Team member who would also umpire for the team on occasions. And this Ed Singleton character would become John's first partner in crime. And just a few months later, the two would begin plotting a robbery that would not work out well on any level. In May of 1924, J. Edgar Hoover was appointed uh, acting director of the Bureau of Investigation. His appointment would become permanent in January 25. Dillinger doesn't likely know or if he does know, he likely doesn't give two shits about Hoover, but he will down the road. September of 24, still without a job, Dillinger tries to make some fast fast cash with his new baseball buddy. Ed Singleton tells him about a local grocer back in Mooresville who is going to be carrying out his daily receipts, carrying out his money on his way from work to a barber shop. Singleton thinks that Dillinger can easily rob the elderly grocer for the cash, you know, while Singleton wakes for him in a, in a getaway car down the street. And they both decide to go through with it. They're going to try and take this guy's money in broad daylight. Uh, John may have already burglarized two area gas stations uh, by this time. He was suspected of doing so, but never caught, never admitted to those crimes. And this crime is so dumb. So dumb. Mooresville has less than 2,000 people in it at this time. Dillinger lived in Mooresville for quite some time. His dad and stepfamily lived there. Everybody knows who they are. Uh, he lives just 15 miles away in a town of around 5,000 people where Singleton lives and everybody knows who he is. People are going to know who the fuck these guys are. Why would anyone living in a small town try to rob someone else in that small town? Like they're not even wearing masks. So of course the crime doesn't go well. Dillinger armed with a 32 caliber pistol and a large bolt wrapped in a handkerchief sneaks up on this guy, this poor elderly grocer, bops him in the head with the bolt. Uh, he was hoping to knock him out. He doesn't come close. And the old guy's tougher than he assumed and he fights back. And, and I'm sure he's thinking like, why the fuck is John hitting me in the head with his bolt? In the ensuing chaos, John's pistol accidentally goes off. Dillinger thinks he'd shot the grocery, takes off running without the money, runs down the street to meet Singleton's getaway car. Singleton had freaked out. He'd gotten spooked and he just drove off, just left him there. So then Dillinger is just walking around town, you know, until police track him down. And we're like, hey dude, why'd you hit Larry on the head? Why, 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 did, why did, you know, try and do that, you dipshit. We got to take you down the station now. Oh, man. And this is one account of this early failed robbery. There's another slight variation. Other accounts of the story say that Dillinger and Singleton attempt the robbery together, and they're recognized by a local pastor in the middle of the crime. He's like, John, Ed, what are you doing? And just turns him into the police. Again, so dumb in a small town where everybody knows who you are. Hands in the air, Grandpa. No sudden moves. Now, real slow, hand me that cabbage. Uh, John? John Dillinger? What in the hell are you doing, son? Your dad's going to be furious. Ed? Ed Singleton from Martinsville. I just watched you call that baseball game last Saturday. Your strikes were a little loosey-goosey. What the hell are you two clowns doing? Like, ah. The local prosecutor convinces Dillinger's father that if his son pleads guilty in court, makes it easy on him, that the court will be lenient since he'd never been convicted of a major crime. Thinking that he will just get a slap on the wrist, Dillinger Jr. appears in court with no lawyer without his father, and he gets a lot more than a slap on the wrist. He's convicted of assault and battery with intent to rob, and the judge sentences him to 10 to 20 years in prison. So he's getting sent to the big house, the Indiana State Reformatory, despite this being his first conviction. Singleton, who already had a prison record, was only sentenced to four years because he actually went to uh, came to court with a lawyer. Uh, poor Ed, uh, he and Dillinger would never team up again. Ed would die a short time uh, after getting out of prison, just a few years later, after passing out drunk on a railroad track. Uh, and, and that's how you know you've had way too much to drink. When, when the rumble and noise of a coming train doesn't wake you up after you've passed down the tracks. Unfortunately, once you learn that lesson, uh, you're super duper dead usually. I, I don't, you know what I do? I have a little trick. When I'm crossing a railroad, if I've had anything to drink, what I do is I I use my dick like a lasso. And I just, I swing it out to a nearby tree and I just swing over the tracks uh, using my penis like, like a rope, you know. But I, but I know I, I know everyone can't do that. So I shouldn't have even brought that up. September 16th, 1924, John Herbert Dillinger, man with the penis of unknown size, arrives at the Indiana State Reformatory in Pendleton, little town 35 miles northeast of Indiana, a town of under 1,500 people at the time. Hometown of Dick Dickey. Do you know who Dick Dickey was? Think about it. Are you sure? Dick Dickey's a real name. Dick Dickey was drafted in the NBA in 1950. He played one season for the Celtics. One season for the Boston Celtics averaged 2.8 points a game as a point guard, never played again. And I don't know much else about him other than he really, truly was named Dick Dickey. Right? Last name Dickey, first name Richard. Went by Dick. Died in 2006 in Indianapolis at the age of 79. What the fuck his parents thinking? I did, I did a little bit of etymology research on the word Dick. I know this has been a very Dick-heavy section of the show. Uh, <laughs> it started being used, that term, as a slang for penis in 1880 was originally a military slang for penis, originated in some barracks, 1880. That's when they first shows up on the written page. He's born in 1926. So they knew. They fucking knew. For so over 60 years of his adult life, he was hearing stuff like, Dicky party of one. I'm assuming he was alone a lot of the time. Dicky party of, Dicky, Dick Dicky, your table's ready. For four seasons of college ball at North Carolina State, announcers in Raleigh, we're saying stuff like, make some noise for the Wolfpack starting point guard, Dick Dickey. Give it up for Dick. Give it up for the Dick Dickey. It's a ludicrous name. His parents were idiots. Anyways, we're not here to talk about Dick Dickey or to talk about John Dillinger. It's September 16th, 1924, he's 21 years old. He's just started serving a 10 to 20 year prison sentence and he's pissed. He's pissed about the whole situation. He's a difficult prisoner right off the rip. And he'd served much of his time shortly after arriving in solitary confinement when he's not in solitary He's training to become a criminal. Early in his incarceration, this is when he supposedly said, I will be the meanest bastard you ever saw when I get out of here. And he wouldn't necessarily be the meanest, uh, but he would but he would raise a lot of hell. He would cause a lot of mayhem. He would be a menace. Uh, while in prison, he played on the prison baseball team. He worked at the prison shirt factory. accounts say he was a good worker, routinely finishing his quota quickly and then worked to fulfill the quotas of other workers. He had a charming personality, made him popular amongst inmates. He wasn't really popular amongst guards. He also uh, hated authority, didn't like being told what to do. He tried to escape a number of times. He also ended up befriending a number of hardened criminals who had become his crime gurus. At first, Dillinger's young wife, Beryl, just 18, wrote and visited him frequently. After a while though, she became weary of the distance between her and her husband. Of course she did. She'd only known him for three weeks before they got married and they were married for less than five months when he got arrested. And now he might not get out until she's going to be in her late 30s. Nope. That shit doesn't even work out in the movies. She soon begins visiting and writing less frequently, right? She uh, she does stay with him to some degree for the first uh, five years of imprisonment. Finally, on June 20th, 1929, Beryl uh, decides to officially divorce him. I'm guessing she'd been messing around on the side uh, before that, I mean, and I wouldn't blame her. Just two days before his 26th birthday, he's devastated. Uh, I feel like he was probably the one and only person who didn't see that coming. She'd married two additional times and she would live until the ripe old age of 87. July 5th, 1929, after losing his wife, an angry Dillinger is sent to the Indiana State Prison in Michigan City to live among more hardened criminals, and he is sent there upon his own request. Michigan City birthplace of Don Larson, dude who pitched a perfect game for the Yankees in Game 5 of the World Series to clinch a series victory over the Brooklyn Dodgers. That guy passed away just a few months ago on January 1st, just a few miles north of the Suck Dungeon uh, in Hayden, Idaho. Anyways, authorities scratch their heads as to why Dillinger would want to be transferred to a more strict, more violent prison. When asked why he wanted to make the move, he said he uh, wanted to uh, play for a better baseball team. They had a better baseball team in, at the Indiana State Prison. Uh, it, was, it was bullshit. He did not end up joining the prison baseball team there. Instead, he teamed up with a friend of his, a couple friends, Harry Pierpoint, Pierpont and Homer uh, Van Meter, who he'd met incarcerated in Pendleton. They'd been transferred up there a few months uh, prior. They were each career criminals with no intention of letting prison reform them. They were planning a jailbreak and several bank robberies for uh, when they got out of jail. Make some real money. They introduced John to Walter Dietrich, a seasoned bank robber who'd worked with one of the most notorious bank robbers of that time, Herman Lamb. And Dietrich taught these men meticulous methods used by Lamb to pull off many successful heists. Lamb was known for doing detailed research before hitting a bank. He'd learned the bank layout, the location of the valuables. The movements of the guards, of the workers, where the nearest police station was, et cetera, et cetera. He wasn't just barging in with a gun, demanding money. He was a student of the game. Fucked up game, to be sure. Especially in the days when I said, you know, uh, earlier that, you know, banks weren't guaranteed. And these guys were essentially just stealing from the customers. But, you know, he did take his craft seriously. Pierpont and Van Meter had the knowledge and the plans in place for some big robberies, but they still needed to actually, you know, uh, get out of jail to go ahead with their perfectly crafted robberies. To do that, they need a man on the outside to outfit them with guns, money, the bankroll to escape. John had a significantly smaller sentence than his friends and was going to be getting out much earlier than them. Pierpont and Van Meter wanted him to be that man. You break us out, we'll make you a lot of money, kid. John was all about it. Despite his first heist going very wrong, he wanted to double down on his choice to be a, a bank robber, to you know, to rob, to be criminal. He was committed to being a gangster once he got out of prison. His new pals inform him of reliable accomplices and safe houses on the outside. They give him a list of banks and stores that would be great places to rob. A few months after transferring to Indiana State Prison in late October of 29, the stock market crashes. The Great Depression begins. The following spring, April 24th, 1930, the first list of public enemies is published by the Chicago Crime Commission. Al Capone is in first place. Soon, John Dillinger will top the list of America's most wanted men. Also in April, Hollywood's version of Gangster Life captivates the nation in the first of many Depression era crime movies, Little Caesar. Uh, three and a half years later, March 10th, 1933, Dillinger, after receiving a master's degree in the Indiana State Prison in Michigan City, is paroled. When he leaves, one of the few possessions he leaves prison with is a map supplied by his fellow inmates of prospective robbery sites. Man, nice. Leaving prison with the mind on crime kind of messes up the whole point of being in prison. Dad couldn't reform him when he was a kid. The state can't reform him now as a man. He'd served nine and a half years of a sentence, and then he walks out into a different world. I can't imagine that, right? He's a few months shy of 30 now. He's walked out into the world of the Great Depression. This is a dude who had a hard time keeping steady work during the roaring 20s when everyone could get a job, and now he's an ex-con without much of a resume walking into the hardest economy the U.S. has ever seen. He immediately, of course, turns to crime. he was going to anyway, but that gives him even more incentive. Just a few weeks after his release, he commits his first robbery. He gets right to it. He commits his crime with a uh, small-time gang of hoodlums in Indianapolis known as the White Cap Gang, the White Cappers. He gets a long-barreled Colt thirty-two twenty revolver, also known as an Army Special. He and two other men rob city foods, an all-night grocery store in Indy at 4609 East 10th. After almost getting caught stealing two of the getaway cars they needed to pull this off with. When Dillinger and 19-year-old William the Kid Shaw walk into uh, this uh, little shop, this little grocery store, A clerk spots the long barrel of the colt poking out of Dillinger's pocket. She screams. Shaw grabs some money out of the cash register while John waves his revolver around telling everyone to go to the back of the store. An elderly man refuses to move. John takes the butt of his revolver, bashes the dude in the mouth, hits him in the jaw hard enough to knock out several teeth. This is the second old man he's bashed in the head now. First, Frank Morgan. I don't think I said his name earlier. That grocer who got sent, he got sent to prison for trying to rob him back in Mooresville. Now this guy. And this is a dude who'd become a Robin Hood-type national hero, a guy who likes to bash old men in their heads with uh, with various blunt instruments. Uh, the fact that people were killed during his later holdoffs would be overlooked. Moments like this would be overlooked. Instead, the national press would play him up as a brilliant, daring, likable individual, beating the banks, which had inhumanely foreclosed mortgages on helpless debtors. Because that's a story that, you know, readers wanted to hear at that time. Uh, these guys did all this to make less than 100 bucks total, this robbery. Dillinger got 30 bucks out of the deal after splitting money with Shaw and the getaway driver. A few days later, Dillinger and the kid Shaw team up again. They team up with a new getaway driver. They hit Hag Drugstore, 5648 uh, East Washington. Uh, Dillinger and Shaw walk in this time with their guns already out, yelling for everyone who isn't the cashier to get to the corner, not look at them. They make around hundred bucks uh, total again. And these guys were not very good at this stuff yet. <laughs> with this robbery, um, Shaw got really pissed at some of the people who were put in the corner for looking at him because he kept telling them to turn around and then he'd go back to trying to get some money on the cashier and he'd look around and they'd be like back facing him. And then he almost like shot some of them. He was like, turn around. He finally realizes that he is yelling, turn around. They would turn around one way. And then Dillinger is also yelling, turn around and they would turn back around. So they're just fucking spinning around in circles, trying to listen to both these fucking idiots. <laughs> uh, a few days later, they hit a Kroger. Kroger grocery store at 3512 North College Street. Kroger grocery stores, man, they've been around since 1883. They only make a couple bucks this time because Shaw's white cappers had already robbed the store just a few days uh, before. And, and uh, you know, now money collectors are coming a few times a day to take the cash to a safe. And Dillinger's pissed. He'd asked them, are you sure you hadn't robbed this place? And they're like, no, no, no. Then they took go to Robert's. Oh yeah, I guess we did a few days ago. Uh, sorry, I forgot. John's getting sick of these small time, you know, little hits on June 22nd, 1933, Dillinger's 30th birthday. He and Shaw go to Case of Bank. He wants to hit a bank, but uh, it's boarded up. This bank was a victim of the Great Depression. So they're like, shit, okay. So they go to a fruit market instead on 10th and Bell Fountain. Then they hit Eaton Sandwich Shop at 642 East Maple Road, popular bustling place. And they make 340 bucks, their biggest haul to date. The very next day, Shaw gets married. He's doing this a day before he gets married. Now he's gonna have to take a break from uh, small time stickups to go on his honeymoon. Dillinger takes off with some other ex-cons to see the 1933 World's Fair in Chicago he's got a little bit of spending money now he buys himself a new suit looks all gangstered up got some shiny shoes he meets several other guys who'd uh, served time for bank robberies on the road trip one man white whitey moeller had just beaten a life sentence he'd been given for shooting and killing a police officer by right, check this out this is a pretty innovative escape attempt or not attempt uh he did escape he he was uh, he started drinking shellac where he was working in the Indiana state prison. Shellac is a wood glaze made from a resin created by the female lac bug on trees in Thailand and India. And he found out that drinking shellac would turn his skin yellow. And he tricks the doctors in this prison into making them think that he has tuberculosis, that he's a lunger. So they send him to a very lightly guarded sanitarium near Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he just stops drinking shellac. And so he feels great. And then he just walks the fuck out. Like who didn't escape from prison back then? Uh, Moeller, Dillinger, several others believed to have robbed a number of places on this road trip. Uh, which places nobody knows for sure. But Dillinger came back to Indy with enough cash to buy a Chevy. Dillinger and his gang continued to rob all kinds of places throughout the summer of 1933. During one holdup at the Bida Wee Inn, a roadhouse on Burlington Drive and 12th Street in Muncie, Indiana, Dillinger again uses the butt of his revolver to smash another dude in the jaw. Young dude this time who doesn't lose any teeth. On either June 10th or June 21st, different sources list uh, the dates. Uh, Dillinger successfully robs his first bank, New Carlisle, Ohio. He takes $10,600 accompanied by two unidentified men. The Dayton Daily News reports that the bandits snuck into the bank at some point during the night, ambushed the first person to arrive to work the next morning, Clerk Horace Grisso. Dillinger and his crew bound uh, any bank staff up that enter the building while they're waiting to access the vault. Shortly after that, Dillinger robs another bank, the commercial bank in Dalesville, Indiana, walks in by himself this time. Little town of around 1,000 people. 50 miles northeast of Indianapolis, 11 miles southwest of Muncie. When the teller tells him she doesn't have the key to open the door between the lobby and the bank's caged working area, Dillinger quickly and gracefully springs over the six-foot barrier. This little move earns him his first nickname in the press. This is when he starts getting called the jackrabbit. Not known how much he got. Some think around $3,500. The teller said he scooped several handfuls of cash into a sack. He took a valuable coin collection and three diamond rings that belong to the daughter of another cashier, another teller, who dropped them off earlier when she went to play tennis so they would be safe. That sucks. When Dillinger gets back to Indy, he finds out that his first robbery partner, William the Kid Shaw, isn't going to be a partner anymore. He's been arrested for some of their earlier robberies, and he gets a 10-year prison sentence. This arrest does not deter Dillinger from committing more robberies one bit. He's got a taste for it now, and he wants to put together a more experienced gang to pull off bigger heists. Right? He's, he's got to save up enough money to break out those dudes from prison. Earlier, they're going to get him the big jobs. So, with a variety of dirt bags, he robs more banks across Indiana as the summer of '33 continues. Uh, in one holdup, in a moment of anger, he pulls the trigger on a teller, and miraculously, the gun jams. So he almost tries to kill somebody this summer, or he does try to kill somebody, almost kills him. He also gets uh, uh, better at robbing banks throughout the summer. He doesn't uh, just always barge in and demand money. He starts doing stuff like pretending to be a sales representative for a company that sells bank alarm systems. He reportedly entered a number of Indiana and Ohio banks and used this ruse to access their security systems and bank vaults, uh, you know, to case them out before he robbed them later. Another time he and the crew he's with pretend to be part of a film company, scouting locations for a bank robbery scene. Bystanders stand and smile as a real robbery ensues. And then they really take the loot. Uh, Stories like this increase his growing legend. On July 26th, before the press knows that the jackrabbit is John Dillinger, he returns home to Mooresville to visit his dad and hears that his parole officer, Frank Hope, plans to have him arrested for a variety of parole violations. Hope orders surveillance of John's sister Audrey's home in Indy and other locations. On August 4th, John robs the Montpelier National Bank in Montpelier, Indiana for $6,700. He doesn't care that he's on a parole violation You know, a few days later, Dillinger is tied to a a number of bank robberies by an ex-Pinkerton detective, Forrest C. Huntington, who's been working for a security association, working for a variety of Indiana banks. He interviews a number of men associated with Dillinger, including William the Kid Shaw. And now the Jackrabbit is known to be John Dillinger. And now John Dillinger is one of Indiana's most wanted men. On August 10th, Hoover's Bureau of Investigation is expanded, renamed the Division of Investigation. Also on the 10th, Indiana State Police put out an APB, all points bulletin, all points bulletin, looking for John Dillinger and a few of his associates, right? They're looking for this guy specifically now. Four days later, 10 days after the Montpelier heist, Dillinger and some of his crew robbed the Bluffton Bank in Bluffton, Ohio for six grand. Police in Ohio are now looking for John Dillinger. Three weeks later, September 6th, at the Massachusetts Avenue Bank in Indianapolis, Dillinger makes off with 21,000. He's getting some, you know, bigger, bigger jobs now. He has enough money now to break out some of his friends from the Indiana State Prison, those guys who taught him how to rob banks for real money. Homer Van Meter had already been released in May of that year, so he doesn't have to break him out, but he wants to break out Harry Pierpont and a few other members of Harry's gang. He wants to put together a dream team of bank robbers and take things even further. And think about how insane this plan is. He's robbing banks to save up enough money to bust a bunch of people out of prison to rob bigger banks just to even have the balls to want to try to pull that off. You know, he wants to take things further and he's already taken things pretty damn far. By the end of the summer of 33, Dillinger becoming pretty famous. He and his boys are starting to rap rob banks in a more theatrical manner, posing as alarm system reps, like, you know, film crews, like I said. You know, they're beginning to, uh, to gain a glamorous reputation as, as law enforcement agents try to catch them and uh, start making these guys look pretty inept. They, they dress well. The media plays them up as daring depression heroes and the public eats this shit up. Then on September 22nd, John's criminal career almost comes to a halt. This next sequence of events is so nuts to me. He gets arrested on September 22nd uh, in connection with the Bluffton robbery in Ohio that he committed on August 14th, because the police receive a tip about his whereabouts from the landlady of an old girlfriend that he'd recently visited in Dayton, Ohio. He's jailed in Lima, Ohio, where he is sent to the Allen County Jail to await trial. After searching him before letting him into the prison, the police discover a document that appears to be a prison escape plan. He won't tell them what it's about. Luckily for Dillinger, just before being arrested, he had helped put a plan in motion for the escape of Pierpont and Pierpont's uh, other gang members, you know, sick, uh, including seven other guys he'd previously met in prison, most of whom who worked in the prison laundry back in Indiana. And he put that, yeah, put that plan in motion. John used some of his money from the bank heist to buy weapons and bribe key figures at the Indiana prison just days before he's arrested in Ohio. He smuggled seven .45 caliber pistols into the prison in a barrel of thread meant uh, for the on-site shirt factory. Then four days after he gets arrested in Ohio, on September 26th, being loyal to the guys he'd met in prison previously pays off big time. They do escape. Harry Pierpont and Russell Clark tell the shirt factory superintendent, George Stevens, he was needed in the basement. They get him down there. He's jumped by the rest of the gang and taken hostage. Walter Dietrich, then goes and finds Deputy Superintendent Albert E. Evans, claims he's needed uh, to help break up a fight in the factory basement. Evans also jumped by the gang, becomes their second hostage. Pierpont had been harshly disciplined by Evans during his stay at the prison. He used this opportunity to get some shots in on him. Uh, He has to actually uh, be pulled off before he goes too far and ends up killing the guy, you know, and fucking up their plans for escape. Foreman Dudley Triplett happens to be heading to the basement for supplies. Although this is not part of their original plan, he's taken hostage. Right now they got three. The men uh, make Stevens lead the way through the prison. They conceal their guns under stacks of shirts, slowly make their way through. The rest of the guards and prisoners don't even seem to notice what's going on. There's four gates standing between these guys and their freedom. At the first gate, Stevens uh, tells the guard, Frank Swanson, to let this party through or they will kill him. Right, they got guns. Swanson becomes another hostage. The gang goes through the second gate in the same manner. More threats of violent death. At the third gate, they use a metal shaft they'd taken from the factory as a battering ram, open the door themselves. Guard Fred Wellnitz is then badly beaten until another guard, Guy Burklow, opens the outer final gate of the prison. The men and their hostages are now in the lobby of the prison's administration building. Their gang herds eight prison workers uh, into the prison vaults. Joe Burns, one of the people escaping, shoots 72-year-old prison employee Finley Carson twice for not moving his ass fast enough. At that moment, hearing the gunshots, the warden, Louis E. Kunkel, comes into the lobby. He's made to join the rest of the workers in the vaults. He's locked in there. And then the gang just walk out the front door, just fucking leave. This you know, this is like a maximum security prison. While it's difficult to know 100% who exactly escaped, it's likely thought that it was Harry Pierpont, Charles Makeley, Russell Clark, Edward Shouse, John Red Hamilton, Walter D. Crick, uh, James Oklahoma Jack Clark, Joseph Fox, Joe Burns, and Jim Jenkins. These men along with Harry Copeland, would soon become known as the First Dillinger Gang. After walking out the front door of the prison, Dietrich, James, Clark, Fox, and Burns went one way. They immediately run into Sheriff Charles Neal, who had just performed a prison intake in the administration building. The men overpower him, steal his weapons, take him hostage, force him to drive them away from the prison. They abandon the sheriff's car near Wheeler, Indiana, steal another vehicle. That blows a tire. So now they're on foot, lost in a dense forest, (laughs) Eventually, the group begins to uh, see their hostage, Sheriff Neal, as a liability, as a burden. They fight over what to do with him. James Clark also becoming a burden, complaining about stomach problems. Neal and Clark split off from the group. Clark releases Neal and Gary, Indiana, and the lawman immediately has Clark arrested and sent back to prison. Guess he should have shut the fuck up about his stomach. When you're breaking out of prison, no one wants to hear you whining about a tummy ache. Uh, Pierpont, Russell Clark, Ed Shouse, John Hamilton, Charles Makeley, Jim Jenkins, they all go in another direction. They escape. Uh, They had some help from the outside. They go to a gang accomplice, Mary Kinder's house. She would agreed to help the men find a safe house and evade the law if they would include her brother in the escape plan. They weren't able to do that. He He was in the infirmary at the time of the escape and had to be abandoned. But when these dangerous men show up at her house, it's not like she can tell them like, well, fucking deal's off. So Kinder follows through on her promise to help the men, sets them up with new clothes and a hideout in Hamilton, Ohio. Unfortunately for Jenkins, while on the way to the safe house in Hamilton, uh, the men have to evade the police during a chase. The car door swings open that he's inside of, and he falls the fuck out, and the rest of the men can't risk going back for him. So he's he's killed by police that night. Pierpont, uh, Shouse, Clark, Hamilton, and Makeley do get safely to Ohio, where they use the hideout in Hamilton, as well as Pierpont's parents' house, to plan another jailbreak. They want to return the favor for John. How fucking crazy is this? The guy's just committed a daring armed escape from prison. People are shot, right? Taking hostages. And the first crime they plan is to immediately break into another jail. Honor amongst thieves. Classic honor amongst thieves. October 12th, just 20 days after Dillinger got arrested, Pierpont, Makeley, Clark arrive in Lima to free him from jail. They meet with Sheriff Jess Sarber. Sheriff Sarber and his family live in a house on the same grounds as the jail. He, along with his wife and deputy Wilbur Sharp, had just finished dinner. Pierpont, Makeley, and Clark come in disguise, claiming to be police officers, needing to transfer Dillinger back to Indiana State Prison, the fucking balls on these guys. When Sheriff Sarber asks these guys for some credentials, you know, Pierpont just shoots his gun, uh, shoots shoots the sheriff. uh, Then they beat him unconscious. They take the keys to Dillinger's cell, lock the deputy and the sheriff's wife in the basement, and then escape. And Sheriff Sarber dies of his wounds about two hours later. The four men busted out Dillinger, escaped to Chicago, where they joined the rest of the gang. They fucking did it. They escaped from prison and busted Dillinger out from jail and made it to Chicago to rendezvous with other gang members. Now they need major firepower to commit the kind of robberies they have in mind. So now they decide to raid and rob a police arsenal to get those supplies. Turns out it was poorly guarded. And it was easily taken over by Dillinger and his crew. They raid the arsenal and they make off with multiple guns, tons of ammo, and bulletproof vests. These guys are not fucking around. This feels like a movie. These guys don't give a fuck about taking on the police. Uh, This armed, you know, armed up now, now they're going to go on a huge crime spree. They get right to work. And the Dillinger gang robs Central National Bank and Trust Company in Greencastle, Indiana. They take almost $75,000. A month later, November 20th, they hit the American Bank and Trust Co. in Racine, Wisconsin for almost 30,000. Now they're becoming truly infamous, becoming super popular among the American people, right? They're making all kinds of national headlines. The press is writing all kinds of reports on these guys. They're always wearing suits and fedoras to the robberies. They're generally gracious to the bank's customers and workers. No drug or alcohol use is permitted during the planning or carrying out of any robbery, leaving less room for error. Like they're giving like interviews discreetly (laughs) to press members. Uh, they split the loot evenly. They plan heists meticulously. These these guys are dirtbags, but also consummate professionals. They they start keeping business hours, right? They're like, you know, go plan fucking bank robberies between nine and five. And then, you know, go home, have like lunch breaks and shit. John Dillinger's name even gets to be uh, used to sell car uh, sell cars and ads. that claim Dillinger will never be caught if he continues to drive a fort. How fun, that's fucked up. Imagine if someone did that in recent history. Use Trojan condoms. No other condom on the market works better to keep your semen out of a vagina and your DNA away from a crime scene. If Gary Ridgway had only used Trojan brand condoms, the Green River killer would still be burying women out in the woods. It's ridiculous. Various law enforcement agencies are becoming increasingly agitated by both the existence of the Dillinger gang, the way they're portrayed in the press, you know, which leads to growing popularity. December 5th, 1933, prohibition is repealed by the 21st Amendment, and America's black market takes a massive hit. Gone are the massive bootleg liquor profits, but there's still banks to be robbed. Eight days later, December 13th, the Dillinger gang hits the Unity Trust and Savings Bank in Chicago for almost nine grand. Next day, Chicago detective William Shanley follows up on a tip that the Dillinger squad may have been responsible for the robbery. He approaches gang member John Hamilton at a garage where he's having his car detailed. And Hamilton once he figures out this guy's a detective immediately shoots and kills him. These guys again, they don't they don't give a fuck about law enforcement. 2 days later the Chicago Police Department formed the Dillinger Squad, comprised of roughly 40 men led by Captain John Steeg Melvin Purvis. Their one and only job is to find the Dillinger Gang, bring them to justice for the robberies and for the murder of Detective Shanley. But the Dillinger Gang is leaving Chicago 4 days later, December 20th, to take a little vacation. They head down to Florida. Oh, Well, you know, get away from the cold. Dillinger brings his girlfriend, Evelyn Billy Frechette. After spending Christmas and New Year's, uh, partying up in Florida, the gang heads to El Paso, Texas, where they're uh, hoping to sneak across the border, you know, start a new crime spree down South, but there's a highly visible police presence on the border, prevents Dillinger and the gang from sneaking into Mexico. They try and sneak into Mexico again, South to Tucson. They make it all the way over to Arizona. Too many cops again. Pictures of John's face have been circulated everywhere. All right, that this, all this press is hurting them big time when it comes to sneaking out of the country. Makely, Pierpont, and Clark decide to stay in Tucson, hide out, while Dillinger and a few other gang members decide to head back to Chicago, rob a few more banks. Dillinger and Hamilton plan the heist of the First National Bank in East Chicago, Indiana, to get more supplies. The gang attacks state police arsenals in Auburn and Peru, Indiana. Both small towns of less than 10,000 people. They steal machine guns, rifles, revolvers, more ammunition, bulletproof vests. Jesus Christ. There's too much heat on them to sneak into Mexico. So they decide just to go rob more banks in an area where there's a 40 fucking officer task force looking for them. And on the way, you know, they just attack two police arsenals. Just load up. January 15th, 1934, they robbed the first national bank, right? They were planned. During the robbery, Dillinger was confronted by officer William O'Malley, who shoots him several times. Shoots Dillinger but it doesn't matter because he's wearing a bulletproof vest. Dillinger is unharmed. O'Malley, not so lucky. He is not wearing a bulletproof vest. Dillinger and the gang shoot back, shoot him eight times. The gang gets away with $20,000 and Dillinger is now wanted for murder in addition to so many robberies. After this heist with their cash and their arsenal, Dillinger and Hamilton head back to Tucson to meet up with the rest of the gang. Back in Tucson, Dillinger and some of his gang run into some real unfortunate luck on January 25th a fire breaks out at the Hotel Congress where the men are staying. Forced to leave their luggage behind, their, you know, that has all their fucking cash in it, uh, and their weapons, they're rescued through the window, down a fire truck ladder by some, you know, firemen. Gang member Charles Makeley tips a couple of firemen 12 bucks to climb back up and get their luggage. Uh, according to the firefighters, you know, they get a good look at several members of Dillinger's gang while they're doing this. They later recognize Makeley and another member while thumbing through a copy of True Detective... And inform the police who promptly arrest five members of the gang, including Dillinger. The police find them in possession of over 25 grand in cash, three machine guns. No, I'm sorry, sorry, three submachine guns, five machine guns. Tucson celebrates this, this historic arrest to this day. They have their annual Dillinger Days Festival, the highlight of which is a reenactment of the arrest. It was just celebrated uh this past uh January 18th and 19th at the Hotel Congress, which is still there. After their arrest, the men are extradited to Indiana to stand trial. They're held in the Crown Point Jail. Dillinger charged with murder of that police officer in East East Chicago. The police boast to area newspapers that this jail is escape proof. They post extra guards to make sure Dillinger doesn't get out. A debate ensues between all the states where the men were wanted criminals since the gang had hit banks in Ohio, Indiana, Wisconsin, right? Illinois. All these states want to, you know, like uh, want to piece these guys. So, you know, these these three other states want want them extradited for justice in their state. Pierpont, Makeley, and Clark are sent to Ohio to stand trial for Sheriff Sarber's murder. Ed Shouse, one of the escapees from Indiana State Prison, ex-member of the Dillinger gang, testifies against Pierpont, Makeley, and Clark. His testimony helps rack up charges against the gang members. In the end, both Pierpont and uh, Mackley are sentenced to death. Clark's given life in prison. On January 30th, Dillinger arrives at the Lake County Jail in Crown Point, Indiana, where reporters are captivated by his charisma and sense of humor. The dude's still just 30 years old. He hasn't even been out of prison for a year yet. He's been paroled on May... Or he was paroled on May 10th, 1933. Just eight months later, he's back in jail again. He'd already spent a few weeks in jail back at the end of uh, September, early October. All this shit's happening in such a small window of time. Uh, it's this new jail, you know... Uh, um, <laughs> Dillinger poses for a photo with several members of local law enforcement, including prosecutor Robert Eastel, places his arm on Eastel's shoulder, and that scandalous photo will eventually ruin Eastel's career. What, what the fuck? Even the prosecutor sees Dillinger as a celebrity first, criminal second. Uh, there are different accounts of what happened next. But the the prison was certainly not escape proof. Uh, March third, nineteen thirty four. Less than two months after being captured for oh so many crimes, including the murder of a law enforcement officer, a few months after busting out of another jail where another law enforcement officer had been murdered, John and another prisoner, Herbert Youngblood, Youngblood, excuse me, escape. How crazy is that? After all this, they finally catch him again. They catch him again, and he escapes again. One account says Dillinger's crooked lawyer managed to smuggle a gun into John's cell and then he used it to break out. Another account says he fashioned a wooden gun out of a shelf in his cell. Yet another account claims Dillinger carved a gun out of either a bar of soap, a washboard, or a potato, had it blackened with boot polish. Uh, the wood story seems to be true. Seems like he uh, he got the, uh, the wood there, carved wood into like shape of a pistol or had it snuck in, but it was a wooden little gun and then used shoe polish, boot polish, whatever you want to call it, to make it look real. And using this boot-polished gun, he tricks a guard into opening his cell. Security had relaxed around the prison after a few weeks, uh, you know, after his arrival. John and Herbert used John's fake gun to get a real gun from that first guard. Then they use the real gun to round up all the other guards in the jail, lock them into a cell, and they just leave. Again, it's like a movie. Dillinger then steals Sheriff Lillian Hawley's new Ford car, embarrassing the police department and the town, and drives back to Chicago. <laughs> and in doing so, he finally breaks the federal law. He crosses the state line in a stolen car, breaking the Federal National Motor Vehicle Theft Act. So odd, with so many robberies, jailbreaks, a murder, this would be the crime that would involve federal law enforcement. The crime was under the jurisdiction of the FBI. Still called the DOI at this point, but we'll we'll call it the FBI. It's gonna be called that in less than a year anyway, just to to be easier. Now Hoover's FBI takes over the Dillinger case. The FBI organizes, organizes a nationwide manhunt for Dillinger. J. Edgar Hoover... The director of the bureau, master of laws, jumps the chance to hunt down Dillinger. Can't wait to put his giant dick in a jar and set that jar on his desk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just get that dick in a jar, guys. Come on. Uh, Hoover hates Dillinger's popularity, hates the fact that crime is being celebrated in America. Despite more heat than ever, right after breaking out of jail, Dillinger heads to Mooresville, visits dad at the family farm where he poses for pictures holding the wooden gun he'd used to escape the Lake County Crown Point jail in one hand and a 1921 Thompson machine gun in the other hand, when the press gets word that Dillinger had paid his father a visit it makes front-page news, makes the FBI look like a bunch of fucking idiots. The master of laws, not pleased. At this point, a lot of John's men are in prison. He needs a new gang. Some reports say that Lester babyfaced Nelson. Gillis actually helps Dillinger escape from Crown Point in exchange for Dillinger's membership in Nelson's gang. Others say Dillinger went to his old Indiana State prison friend, Homer Van Meter, looking for men to outfit a new gang. Regardless of how it began, two of the most notorious bank robbers of the 1930s now working together. John Dillinger, the Jackrabbit, psychopath, babyface Nelson, and it's called the second Dillinger gang. Whether or not, you know, Nelson was leading it or not, it's called the second Dillinger gang in the press. Uh, It consists of Dillinger, Nelson, Van Meter, John Hamilton, Tommy Carroll, and Eddie Green. This gang, a far cry from the calculated and meticulous first Dillinger gang. Second gang, more violent, more impulsive. Nelson, as we learned earlier, hothead. The next robberies would not go smoothly. March 6, 1934, the new gang hits the Securities National Bank and Trust Co. in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Starts off all right. All the gang members are doing their jobs. Carol's on the lookout outside the bank. Hamilton sits in the car ready for a getaway. Dillinger, Van Meter, Green, Nelson all enter the bank to perform their assigned duties. Of Nelson, Tommy Carroll would later quote as saying, that guy would walk into hell and back on a job. He's a mental case, but he would fight the devil when we were hitting the bank. Nelson saw a motorcycle patrolman, hail Keith through the window. And, you know, uh, as one does, he stands up on the cashier's counter, starts laughing like a maniac and just indiscriminately fires his gun out of the window. He does uh, hit uh, Keith several times. Keith lives, but this is not the normal Dillinger gang MO, right? Nelson's mayhem on legs, The others seem to only fire their weapons in self-defense or to serve a purpose. They take uh, almost 50 grand from the bank, surround themselves with hostages and bystanders on the way uh, uh, to get together on their car. The waiting police don't dare attempt to take out gang members when they're so close to innocent civilians. The gang made five of their hostages stand on the car's side running boards. We talked about this a long time ago in Bonnie and Clyde when these guys would do this. They would create a human shield on the sides of the car as they would speed away. How much does that suck if you're one of those hostages? One second, you're making a deposit down at the local bank. Next second, you're hanging out on the side of a fucking car, hanging out for dear life. Well, the most notorious gang in America is speeding off and shooting at cops. Hold on, you crumbs, and take that, coppers. We got the bulge on you today. You coppers ain't no match for these hatchermen. We're taking our cabbage. We'll fill you full of lead. One officer manages to fire off a shot despite all this, and he shoots the car's radiator before the gang drives out of sight. Slows down the car a few miles outside of town. Three police cars catch up to them, but it doesn't do any good because they end up retreating in a barrage of gunfire. They're outgunned. The gang then hijacks another car, drives the hostages. They still have, 10 miles further out of town, release them and escape. And they go right to planning their next job. Just a week after the Sioux Falls robbery, March 13th, the gang hits the First National Bank in Mason City, Iowa. And once again, old psychopath Babyface Nelson causes some trouble. He, Carolyn Dillinger, stationed outside the bank while the other men go in to collect the money. Then Nelson goes berserk. He starts firing wildly in different directions for no obvious reason. He ends up hitting a bystander, R.L. James. And like, he's again, just laughing like a crazy person. He is a crazy person. Later, when Hamilton comes out of the bank, he's enraged to see another innocent person wounded. Nelson, lying, claims that he thought the man was an officer. Meanwhile, an actual officer who's off-duty, James Buchanan, sees what's happened at the bank. And he grabs a sawed off shotgun and takes cover nearby. He doesn't want to fire into the crowd that has gathered to watch the robbery, so he just trades insults with Dillinger, who's guarding the bank door. Eventually, Buchanan says something that pisses Dillinger off, and he pulls his 38 pistol from his pocket and fires, barely missing Buchanan. Then Carroll fires his weapon at an oncoming car that quickly backs up and flees the scene, it's becoming chaotic. All this gunfire catches the attention of Judge John C. Shipley, who is working in his third floor office above the bank. He appears at the window to see what the hell the commotion is. Dillinger fires on the window, right? warns Shipley to stay out of it. Shipley goes to his desk, gets a pistol, comes back, shoots Dillinger in the shoulder. After the men flee with $52,000, Shipley fires again, hits another gang member in the shoulder, Hamilton. This guy was a shoulder sharp shooting son of a bitch. Nobody shoots a shoulder like Judge Shipley. Shipley, the shoulder shooter. Uh, like the Sioux Falls robbery, the gang manages to get away thanks to a human shield of hostages. Dillinger and Hamilton visit a man named Dr. Niels Mortensen in the middle of the night to have their wounds attended to. Three days later, Herbert Youngblood, Youngblood, the guy Dillinger had escaped with with the wooden gun shot and killed by police in Port Huron, Michigan. Just wanted to end his story. A week after the Mason City robbery on March 20th, Dillinger moves into the Lincoln Court Apartments in St. Paul, Minnesota with his girlfriend, Evelyn Billy Frechette. The couple uses the aliases Mr. and Mrs. Carl T. Hellman. The Lincoln court landlady, Daisy Coffey, immediately suspicious. Dillinger and his girl immediately start throwing loud parties that would last all night, frequently visited by other suspicious people. Dillinger, very bad at laying low. Eventually, Coffey decides to let the Minnesota branch of the Bureau of Investigation, right, the FBI essentially know of the odd happenings in the apartment. Lincoln court was then put under surveillance by federal agent Rufus Coulter, and another federal agent, Rusty Nalls, Man, so close to Rusty Nalls, weird. 11 days later, March 31st, Coulter and Nalls, along with St. Paul Police Detective Henry Cummings, continued to surveil the Lincoln Court complex, looking for Hudson's sedan coffee had made note of to the bureau. Coulter and Cummings decide to head up to the apartment to talk to the suspicious tenants. Billy, Dillinger's girlfriend, answers the door, only cracks it open a few inches. She tells the men she wasn't dressed. They have to wait a few minutes for her to be ready to talk to them. Knolls in the car downstairs sees gang member Homer Van Meter pull up to the apartment complex. Agent Coulter goes to a phone to inform the Bureau of the attempt to engage with whoever is in the apartment, and then Van Meter suddenly appears in a hallway. Van Meter evades officers' questions when they see him, tries to calmly walk back down the stairs. Coulter follows him to the lobby, where Van Meter spins around and opens fire. Coulter flees outside where Knowles tells him to disable Van Meter's car. Coulter shoots out a few tires on Van Meter's Ford, but Van Meter manages to get away, carjacking a passerby. Meanwhile, Billy has realized that the men at the door, law enforcement, obviously at this time, she's told Dillinger they've been found. After hearing Van Meter's shots from the lobby, Dillinger fires through the door of his apartment in the hallway where Cummings still stood. Cummings dives for cover. This is like movie fucking shit. Dillinger comes into the hallway, continues to shoot. Cummings shoots back. There's a significant imbalance of firepower between the two men. Dillinger has a Thompson submachine gun, right? Can fire bursts of bullets at a time. Cummings has a police revolver, holds five rounds. Despite the disadvantage, Cummings shoots Dillinger, hits him in the calf with one of his few bullets, then manages to flee down the stairs and run out of the building. Fleeing for his life, Dillinger and Frechette exit the building through a back door, drive off in the Hudson. They head to Eddie Green's safe house where Dr. Clayton May is called to look at Dillinger's wound. Dillinger is moved to the apartment of Augusta Salt where May works on patients who can't come to the office. April 2nd, two days later, Eddie Green visits Dillinger at Salt's apartment. Later that day, he would be tracked down and shot by FBI G-men. He'd die of his wounds on April 11th, but not before making several delirious statements to the investigators. Things are getting crazier. Dillinger and his girlfriend decide to visit John's family now in Mooresville. How the fuck is the FBI not surveilling this place? In the middle of all this insanity, they stay with John Sr. and reconnect with other family members between April 5th and 8th. Five days uh, later, uh, John and his half-brother Hubert get in a car accident. The Dillingers returning from Ohio, where they would attempt to visit Harry Pierpont's parents. Hubert fell asleep at the wheel. uh, And I'm sorry, it's kind of like five days after an earlier event, but in the middle of this April 58th, April 7th, this happens. Both Dillingers flee the scene after uh, Hubert falls asleep at the wheel, rams into another car, and they end up 200 feet out in the woods. In the car, police find some odd items, including maps, a length of rope, and a bullwhip. Yes, a bullwhip. Hubert will later say that his brother, John, was going to use that whip on a former lawyer, Joseph Ryan, who had taken some retainer money from John. In the middle of all this, on the run from the law, healing from a gunshot wound, he wants to find his old lawyer and fucking bullwhip him. Two days later, April 9th, John and Billy drive to Chicago to meet up with friends of the Dillinger gang, hoping they could find another safe house. A man Dillinger had worked with in the past, an underworld figure Larry Strong promises to help him. Larry sends him to his tavern to await details. Billy enters first to make sure it's safe for John. It's not. Strong had turned against Dillinger and police officers were inside the tavern waiting for him. Uh, Billy is captured by special agents. John becomes frantic, panics, runs off. He can't help her. Dillinger immediately hires his lawyer, Louis Paquette, not the guy he was going to fucking whip to take on her case. He meets with him often over the next few days to discuss it. Billy is fined $1,000, sentenced to two years in prison for harboring a fugitive. Dillinger pays her fine, though Paquette Paquette claims the money comes from Billy's sister as the very fugitive Billy's in trouble for harboring, paying the fine, you know, she incurred for harboring him would not, you know, obviously look good for her. John now desperately wants to break Billy out of prison, even going as far as casing the prison to get a feel for the layout and robbing another police arsenal in Warsaw, Indiana with Van Meter to acquire more guns. These guys love to get more guns. John is talked out of it by Billy herself. All right, please just let me serve the time. The gang, along with their wives and girlfriends, decides it would be best to go into hiding. Uh, Yeah. April 20th, the whole of the remaining second Dillinger gang, Dillinger, Van Meter, Babyface Nelson, Carol, Hamilton, their wives and girlfriends, gang errand runner, Pat Riley, check into the Little Bohemia Lodge in Manitowish Waters, Wisconsin. They'd hope to have a nice quiet weekend of food and cards, but that wasn't the way things would work out. Two days later, the lodge owner, Emile Wanatka, feels something is amiss, During a game of cards, he's playing with Dillinger, Nelson, and Hamilton. He thinks it's weird how whenever he wins a hand, Nelson and Dillinger put guns against his head and say stuff like, ha, looks like you lost again to me. Oh, bad luck. You got some real bad luck, you dirty crumb. He's like, I don't don't remember that being in the rules. No, he notices when Dillinger wins a hand and Dillinger stands up to collect his winnings, he's got a shoulder holster. Starts looking around, sees that everybody's armed. While out of town the next day, Emil's wife tells a friend, Harry Voss, that she thinks the Dillinger gang is staying at their fucking hotel. Voss calls the, the, the federal agents to fill them in on the situation. Agent Melvin Purvis, not wanting to waste any time or let the gang get away, immediately mobilizes the team to fly from Chicago to Wisconsin, right? He's part of that task force, that 40-man team. The team plans on simply sneaking up to the lodge, taking the gang by surprise. There weren't many roads into the lodge. The building's backed out on, onto a lake, so Purvis assumes there's not going to be that many ways for gang members to escape the raid. These, this is the very early days of the Bureau. There's not very many protocols to follow this, uh, you know, to, for, for this type of rate. No roadblocks have been set up. Local authorities were not informed. The agents were not completely sure of the layout or the lodge or of the lodge or who exactly was meant to even be in there. So they don't go in very prepared. That night, the little Bohemia Lodge is having a dinner special that attracts around 75 people. Some guests are still leaving just as agents show up. A car leaving the lodge approaches the agents who shout at the driver to stop and identify himself. The men in the car, John Hoffman, Eugene Bosno, John Morris, don't hear the command because they got the radio cranked up. They're having an animated conversation and the agents open fire on these poor bastards, right? They kill uh, one of them, wound two others. These three guys, totally innocent, no connection to the gang. John Hoffman was a local man. Eugene and John Morris were two civilian conservation corps workers in town for a job. that all come to take advantage of dollar dinner night and end up getting shot to pieces. Hearing the gunfire, gang member Pat Riley uh, and uh, his girlfriend, Pat Sherrington, who returning from an errand Riley was running for Van Meter, they make a hasty break for freedom. Agents shoot at Riley and Sherrington, but they manage to get away, and now all hell breaks loose. Sunday, 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 the Dillinger Gang takes on the G-Men at the Little Bohemia Lodge in Manitowish Waters, Wisconsin john double donkey dick plus a pogo stick dillinger george baby face please have a drink and put the gun down psychopath nelson take on some agents about to be sending some real deep shit for shooting the wrong three men we'll sell you the whole seat but you'll only need the edge it really is a fucking showdown gunfire erupts between dillinger's gang and the g-men Tommy, tommy guns blazing <laughs> uh tommy guns are blazing diners are screaming people are flying for cover glass is shattering And then somehow the whole gang manages to escape despite the FBI's effort to surround and storm the lodge. Everybody gets away. Federal agent W.C. Carter bomb, shot dead by Babyface Nelson during the gun battle. One gang member, John Hamilton, does get shot during the escape, dies of his wounds a few days later on the 27th. He's buried in a gravel pit in Oswego, Illinois, by Dillinger, Van Meter, and friends. The raid on the Little Bohemia Lodge, catastrophic for the Bureau, for Hoover and Purvis personally with one bureau agent, one civilian dead, many others wounded, no gang members in custody. It was a disaster. Many call for Hoover's resignation and Purvis' suspension. Down with the master of laws, nobody sucks like Hoover. The heat is on like never before. The entire country now looking for Dillinger. Hamilton has just died. Nelson is yet to return from his escape after a little bohemia. This leaves Dillinger, Van Meter, and Carroll to have to scrounge up some money to evade the law by themselves. So guess how they raise that money? They rob a bank. Van Meter knows of a town in Ohio that was unlike their usual hits. they probably wouldn't even be suspected. Fostoria was a railroad town of about 12,000, home of Major League Baseball player, 1969 All-Star pitcher Grant Jackson, winning pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates in Game 7 of the 79 World Series. Better pro athlete than Dick Dickey, but a man with a much more boring name, so I won't keep going on about him. Fastoria had about 140 trains slowly making their way through the center of town on a daily basis. Meticulous bank robbers like Herman Lamb would never plan a heist in a town that was practically inescapable. This would be one of their most dangerous robberies. The men had learned to work in a five- or six-man team. Now they have three. They can't do a test run. They don't know the layout. They just know that the town's covered in train tracks where a train could block their escape route at any turn. But the men need money. And as Van Meter said, if they pulled it off, they probably wouldn't even be suspected. Carol's the getaway driver, leaving Dillinger and Van Meter to go in alone. They're used to having a lookout to the door and at least one other man in the building for crowd control. Not having cased the bank beforehand, the men don't even know uh, that there are two more exits inside the bank. One going to a jeweler store, one to a drugstore. Would-be hostage Frances Hilliard manages to use one of these escapes to just escape the robbery. She, She runs to find Frank Culp, the chief of police. As Culp enters, he's spotted by Van Meter, who shoots at him, hit him in the chest with his machine gun. Carol hears shots from down the street where he waits in the getaway car. He gets out, begins firing wildly in the direction of the bank. Shit's getting more violent and messy with these guys. Two civilians, Robert Shields and R.W. Powley, they're hit by the barrage. More townspeople come out now, people who usually would delight to watch a bank robbery. They, they see these outlaws, they start shooting at them. Using their favorite escape tactic, Van Meter and Dillinger take two hostages, Bill Dobb and Ruth Harris, force them to accompany them outside, stand on the running boards of the car, use them as human shields until they get safely out of town. They did manage to steal over $17,000. And at first, no one thought it was a Dillinger gang. Dillinger and Van Meter buy a red Ford with some of their heist money, use it as a mobile safe house. They outfit it with mattresses in the back of the truck, live in it for several weeks, splitting time between the truck and a dilapidated shack in the woods. Rugged times for America's most notorious bank robbers. On May 18th, partially in response to Dillinger, U.S. President FDR signs a bill giving more power to the federal government to fight crime. For the first time, laws grant powerful rights to the agents of the federal government. The anti-crime package also establishes stiff punishments for many of Dillinger's offenses, including bank robbery and crossing state lines to avoid the law. Few days later, May 23rd, Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker, the equally infamous Bonnie and Clyde, killed in a police ambush in Louisiana. The next day, John and Van Meter driving their Ford truck to a back road in East Chicago when a pair of policemen drive up. Van Meter decides they're either going to jail or they're shooting these cops, and he's not going to jail. Van Meter guns officers Martin O'Brien and Lloyd Mulville down with his Tommy gun before the men even have a chance to reach for their weapons or exit the car. Their bodies are found the next day. Police assume it's the work of the Dillinger gang. Uh, pl- you know, papers even report that the men were slain in Dillinger style. Man, Homer Van Meter, that guy did not fuck around. Quick to reach for that Tommy gun. Dillinger would later express remorse for these killings, saying that they were just officers doing their jobs and they didn't deserve to die. It's clear now that the authorities are closing in on Dillinger. With the latest murders, he's officially being blamed for crimes that the police aren't even sure he committed. He needs to do something drastic. So he asked his lawyers to find him a reliable plastic surgeon to alter his face enough that he won't be recognized. Again, it's just like a movie. He was released from the Indiana State Prison barely a year earlier. Now on May 27th, John and Van Meter move into James uh, Probosco's house Probasco, a former boxer, member of a diamond heist ring, briefly trained as a veterinarian, now had a makeshift operating ho- uh, room in his home. Uh, his lawyers reach out to underworld doctor, William Losser, and his assistant, Dr. Harold Cassidy. They've been in trouble with the law. They, they don't have licenses anymore. They need money. Probasco says for five grand, he'll set everything up. He'll get the doctors. He'll pay the doctors. You can use his house. You can get your plastic surgery. And they do perform on him. May 28th, plastic surgery, almost kill him. Dillinger didn't tell him how much he'd eaten that day for whatever reason. And they give him the wrong amount of anesthetic and he loses consciousness and almost dies. They bring you back <laughs> via CPR and then still perform surgery. And it's brutal. He keeps waking up from the anesthesia anesthesia not being right. He keeps vomiting uh, from an ether overdose and the pure shock of being awake during a surgery. Over the course of several hours, they remove three moles, give him a rudimentary facelift and fill in his cleft chin. Later, once the swelling goes down, Dillinger allegedly says, I don't even look any different than I did. With the uh, newly released, uh, realized fingerprint database, John and Van Meter also opt to have these doctors erase their fingerprints. Dr. Loser had invented a system of fingerprint removal, combining uh, nitric and hy- hydrochloric acids. It was an excruciating procedure, and he charged them in an additional $100 per finger. After John's death, he would testify about the work he did on Dillinger and Van Meter. So now, by the summer of 1934, Dillinger had dropped completely out of sight. He's got a new look. FBI have no leads to follow. If he could have kept his head down, he might have actually gotten away with all this. But he doesn't. He drifts into Chicago where everyone's looking for him. Takes on the alias Jimmy Lawrence. Takes a clerk job. Makes a new girlfriend named Polly Hamilton, who's unaware of his true identity. Stupid. Stay alone. Be gone, Lucifina. In a large metropolis like Chicago, he thinks he can just lead an anonymous existence. And he does for a little while. However, again, Chicago is where the most heat is on him. Somehow Dillinger doesn't realize he's at the center of an FBI dragnet. When authorities find out that one of Dillinger's recent getaway cars is on a Chicago side street, they're like, yep, he's here. He's in the city. And then on June 22nd, his 31st birthday, he's informally named America's first public enemy number one on a speech or in a speech given by U.S. Attorney General Homer S. Cummings. Celebrates his birthday by going out to dinner with Polly. Why isn't he hiding? An FBI agent would later say about him, excuse me, it was all a game to Dillinger. It was his wits against the FBI's wits, and Dillinger was winning. He, didn't, he wasn't going to hide. He loved this game. The next day, the U.S. Justice Department offers a $10,000 reward for the arrest of Dillinger and a $5,000 reward for info leading to his arrest. Awards for criminals had just been made possible by new legislation days earlier. All but three members of the second Dillinger gang, now dead, Dillinger fears the rest of them will soon be dead as well. It's down to Dillinger, Van Meter, and Babyface Nelson. With their funds depleted by surgeries, eyes on a comfortable retirement and tropical location, they decide to plan one more big robbery. They want a hundred grand this time. They choose the Merchants National Bank in South Bend, Indiana. As many as three other men were brought in on the heist, their identities have never been conclusively proven. Some speculate one was Pretty Boy Floyd, a man who would take over Dillinger's place as public enemy number one after his death. Van Meter's the lookout that day. The others make their way into the bank. And then one of the unidentified men starts shooting at the ceiling. These fucking lunatics. The noise prompts Officer Howard Wagner to investigate. Van Meter sees him coming. Of course, Van Meter does what he does, shoots him before he has a chance to get to the bank. He dies on the scene. Classic Van Meter shoot first, don't bother asking any questions. The shooting sets off a panic in the street. It's chaos. People are running for safety. Van Meter hears sirens in the distance. Harry Berg, local shop owner, grabs his pistol, shoots at one of the robbers. Berg manages to hit Nelson, uh, who is not wounded due to his bulletproof vest. Hothead Nelson goes apeshit after being shot at, swings around, starts wildly firing in the vague direction of the shooter. Bullets are shattering shop windows and car windshields outside. Bystanders are getting hit. Joseph Palowowski, a teenager who is passing by the scene, jumps on Nelson's back, tries to stop him from shooting. Nelson struggles free, slams him into a glass window. The boy gets shot in the hand by a stray bullet and he passes out. Classic Polak. He passes out from getting shot in the hand. He probably thought that's where his brain was. He probably held up his hand screaming, help, I've been shot in the head. JK, stupid running joke for new listeners. Uh, Police arrive on the scene. Bullets continue to fly from both sides. The shootout racks up thousands of dollars in property damage, wounds six civilians. Van Meter grazed by a bullet uh, that almost, you know, grazes his head, technically hits him in the head. Dillinger and the gang get away as they usually do by taking hostages. One of them is the bank president. The heist didn't go like they hoped and they only made about $30,000. Not enough for a tropical retirement. They got to rob another bank. A few days later, July 4th, Independence Day, Dillinger moves into the apartment of Anna Sage who owns several brothels. John was dating Polly, who was a former prostitute under Anna. Sage's real name was Anna Kumpanas. She was a Romanian madam facing deportation back to her native Romania. She met with federal agent Melvin Purvis. That guy's been trying to catch him on July 21st. She promises to turn over Dillinger if she'd be allowed to stay in the U.S. Purvis says he can't guarantee to stop her deportation proceedings, but he'll try. She agrees to tell him the theater that Dillinger, his girlfriend, and herself would soon be attending. She would later be known as the woman in red despite wearing an orange dress the next night. And by the way, she would also get deported. Uh, After all this, helping out, she would get deported back to Romania. The next night, July 22nd, Dillinger attends the film Manhattan Melodrama. It's a film starring Clark Gable and Mickey Rooney about two orphans growing up on both sides of the law Fall in love with the same woman at the Biograph Theater in the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago. I've been there many times. Ah, in this neighborhood, Justice Sage said he would. Dillinger was with his girlfriend, Polly Hamilton, and Anna in her orange dress. Once they determined Dillinger was in the theater, the agent contacts J. Edgar Hoover for instructions. The master of laws recommends that they wait outside rather than risk a gun battle in a crowded theater. He also tells agents to not put themselves in danger and that any man could open fire on Dillinger at the first sign of resistance. When the movie lets out, the lead agent, standing by the front door, signals Dillinger's exit by lighting a cigar. Both he and the other agents involved would later report that Dillinger turned his head when he did that, looked directly at him, then walked by, glanced across the street, slowly moved ahead of his female companions, then pulled a gun and quickly ran into a nearby alley. He knew, he spotted them, he knew they were coming. While John ran, these other, these three agents quickly opened fire on him, firing five shots. Dillinger's hit from behind, falls face first to the ground. Two female bystanders slightly wounded in the legs and buttocks by, you know, bullet fragments. Dillinger struck four times. Two bullets graze him. One causes a superficial wound to his right side. The fatal bullet enters through the back of his neck, severs the spinal cord, passes into his brain, exits just under his right eye, severing two sets of veins and arteries. There were also reports uh, when this happens of people, after he falls down dead, dipping their handkerchiefs and skirts into the pool of his blood, right? So they could have keepsakes for this entire affair. An ambulance is called, but he's dead. He probably died before he hit the ground. Died without saying a word. At 10.50 p.m., July 22nd, 1934, he's pronounced dead officially at Alexian Brothers Hospital. His body's taken to the county cook morgue. He gets those photographs. That's where the infamous boner pic comes from. Uh, throughout the night, most of the next day, a huge throng of curiosity seekers parade to the mor- morgue to catch a glimpse of Dillinger. So weird. Uh, so many people come to the chief coroner, finally complains that the mob is interfering with his work. Cook County deputies have to post, uh, be posted to keep the crowds at bay. Dillinger's family identifies the body, but the desperado, who had recently undergone right that plastic surgery, dyed his hair black in an attempt to hide his identity. And they're like, I don't know if that's him. Friends and acquaintances claimed that the dead body was shorter, heavier than Dillinger, and a barber familiar with the bandit's hair said that uh, his hair was too thick. Later in 1965, a California man wrote to the Indianapolis News claiming to be Dillinger, but was dismissed as a nut. The identity of the body lying at Crown Hill Cemetery could easily be figured out with the DNA tests, but exhumation is not a casual undertaking, and it hasn't been done. And rumors that Dillinger was not shot that day continue to persist, but no serious historian seems to believe them. Uh, Again, Romanian Madam Anna Sage, you know, she becomes a hated figure. She is deported. Dillinger is, you know, uh, a national hero in death, like he was in life, which is ridiculous. The dude was a stone-cold murderer, mayhem master, you know, ran from agents with a gun. He escaped from jail twice. Shot people. Uh, I think they did the right thing, shooting him there. Other people would, you know, think that uh, they got a little reckless shooting him down. They wanted him taken alive. July 25th, 1934, the body of Dillinger, probably his body, buried at Crown Hole Cemetery. After a Christian ceremony, he's laid to rest in the Dillinger family plot. His gravestone vandalized many times over the next several years by people taking souvenirs. Fans continue to observe John Dillinger Day, July 22nd in Chicago, as a way to remember the fabled bank robber. Members of the John Dillinger Died Fue Society traditionally gather at the Biograph Theater on the anniversary of his death, retrace his last walk to the alley, following a bagpipe playing "Amazing Grace." Weird, weird. Why do you see this dude as a hero? You know, I doubt any of the human shields forced to ride on the side of his fucking getaway cards, You know, uh, whatever attend any John Dillinger event, and uh, and all that takes us out of this action-packed, lead-filled, time sucked timeline. Holy shit, that was some exciting stuff. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. So pretty insane tale. What a crazy life. Despite all you just heard, John Dillinger, uh, not even Indiana's most successful bank robber, though. That honor or uh, dishonor belongs to Leon and Morris Johnson. The Brothers Johnson, referred to by Indianapolis Police as Robbery Incorporated, executed upwards of three 1,000 stick-ups at banks, bars, gas stations, and grocers from the late 50s until the mid-70s, taking an estimated $2 million. Uh, maybe we should suck them someday. That's a, that is some crime spree. Uh, former Indianapolis Police Department officer John Flack called the brothers Slippery's Eels because they uh, continually evaded capture. But in the end, they were caught. They almost always get caught in the end. By the time it was done, the U.S. government spent more money trying to catch John Dillinger than he ever stole. Estimated that John Dillinger made away with approximately $500,000 total, roughly $7 million uh, in today's dollars during his 14-month-long crime spree. The government spent $2 million, roughly $28 million, trying to catch him. Dillinger participated in three gangs, was involved in a string of dramatic bank robberies across the country. He escaped several police and FBI traps, raided numerous police armories, helped to mastermind the biggest escape ever from the Indiana State Prison at Michigan City. Those escapees broke him out of jail, you know, days later. He escaped again later from from capture with a wooden gun because of how people felt during the Great Depression because of the anger over the economy, anger towards the government, anger towards the banks. He was a fucking rock star before there were rock stars. The prosecutor posed for a picture with him before, you know, or after his arrest. He was a bad man, but beloved by many. He was very, very good at doing very bad shit. So now let's take a few more looks back at this dude who was in so many ways uh, a dude who just had no fucks to give. A guy who who wasn't a good guy, but a bad guy with giant stone balls who fearlessly went after whatever he wanted in life with a gun in his hand. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, John Dillinger didn't have a giant penis that we know of. But based on, uh, you, know, you know, what he did, he, he may have had uh, to tuck his balls into his boots when he's robbing those banks. Maybe we had some huge-ass balls. Number two, Richard Gere, Gere has killed several gerbils by sticking them up his ass. Stallone was right to call him out on that. It's fucked up. Uh, JK, gosh dang. Uh, no, number two, John was one of the reasons we have the FBI today. He and his gang and others like Bonnie and Clyde and Babyface Nelson fucked so much shit up across the country that the federal government made a number of monumental changes in interstate policing and procedures. One of the major outcomes was the FBI. Number three, People always seem to love anti-heroes. Dillinger and his gang kill people, but America still liked them more than the government and law enforcement who are trying to save people from being killed. Why is that? Because we humans are not rational meat sacks, And I think because, you know, we just don't like being told what to do. To a fault, sometimes we don't like being told what to do. Number four, J. Edgar, master of laws, Hoover, sent G-men after Dillinger, and Dillinger evaded them like he was a fucking roadrunner and they were wily e. coyote. Uh, with Dillinger getting away over and over again until he didn't. Eventually he didn't. That's the thing about these guys. They might pull off like 100 heists in a row, but they still usually end up dead or in prison. Good to remember. Number five, a little bit of new info. Dillinger has had at least six movies made about his life. There are the three movies simply titled Dillinger. One made in 1945, one in 73, one in 91. There was also a cheesy 1950s film called Guns Don't Argue. Uh, The 1979 film, The Lady in Red. And the more recent Public Enemies came out in 2009. Public Enemies stars Johnny Depp as Dillinger. I just put it on my watch list. Now I got Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, with Paul Newman and Robert Redford, and Public Enemies with John Depp or Johnny Depp and a huge cast of characters playing other gangsters and g-men on my on my watch list. That movie grossed uh, well over 200 million to the box office. Got some pretty good reviews. And I know many of us have you know more time on our hands to watch stuff right now. So maybe those are two movies you should check out. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Dillinger and his possibly massive ween have been sucked. I hope that was fun and interesting and a good little escape. Thanks to the TimeSuck team, Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priestess, Harmony Velikamp, Reverend Dr. Paisley, the Bit Elixir design crew with the app, Logan and Kate at Spicy Club Run and BadMagicMerch.com, script keeper Zach Flannery. Thanks to all the all-seeing eyes of the cult helping Liz Hernandez We love Liz running the Cult to Curious Facebook group with all the moderation. Thank you. There has never been a better time to jump in and take advantage of our online community. Uh, The Cult to Curious private Facebook group, link in the episode description to do that. You can also join Discord via the TimeSuck app and also Discord fan favorite, Beefsteak. Uh, You know, uh, the ambassador really Discord, going through some especially tough times right now and has a GoFundMe campaign. We're posting a link to it in today's episode description. A lot of people having rough times. Uh, Beefsteak would be having a rough time regardless of the coronavirus situation. So hope you get well soon, beefsteak. Next week, pandemic episode, where we're hoping to interview a doctor with a lot of knowledge pertaining to exactly what's going on. We're going to dig into other information regarding the state of today's pandemic, talk about the disease, response to the disease, government moves, the economy, more. Also going to talk about the 1918 flu pandemic everyone keeps comparing the coronavirus pandemic to. Gonna throw out the most knowledge I can next Monday, make it bearable to listen to it. Then the Monday after that, a sex suck that's gonna get fucking wild. Gonna be Lucifina filled. So we've got some more entertainment coming your way. Also have Scared to Death if you want to listen to that. If you haven't already, for more podcast entertainment. We got uh, you know, well over 20 episodes now of that. And then again, all the stand-up stuff I talked about earlier, new special, plenty of stuff on Spotify, Pandora, lots of free content for you to enjoy. Stay safe. Don't go crazy. Love you, meat sacks. Time now for today's. Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. First up, an update we shared on the secret suck that needs to be shared here. Very uncertain and stressful time. All that is terrible for mental health. Luckily, Space Lizard Andrew Welmer set up a mental health support group on Facebook, specifically for members of the Time Suck community. Top fucking shelf meat sack, Andrew writes. Hey, Dan. This is Space Lizard Andrew Welmers. Just wanted to say thank you for telling the Space Lizards about my mental health group. I have a request. You can also say something about it on Time Suck. I created it for all meat sacks. Hail Nimrod and keep on sucking. Below is the link if you need it again, your loyal Space Lizard Andrew, Banana Sucker Welmers. Boom! Done, Andrew. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah! The link is going to be in today's episode description. And now for some uh, needed humor from kick-ass Time Sucker Ian Economon, Ian just got Cummins law big time. He writes, hello, Suckmaster and Time Suck team. Loyal Space Lizard, friendly neighborhood FedEx driver checking in with my first of probably many Cummins Law incidents. Listening to the Baba Yaga suck the other day through my Bluetooth speakers while driving around with my sliding doors open like most delivery drivers do. My speakers auto-pause and play when the truck is turned off and on. So I turn the truck on after making a stop and right as a jogger runs by my door, your voice comes through the speaker bellowing, Eat a dick, you uppity bitch. (laughs) Her head whips around. She almost trips over her feet, stares at me for a second. And as I prepare for a verbal beating, she just laughs and asks, what the hell are you listening to? So best case scenario, you maybe have another new listener. Worst case scenario, I maybe have a formal complaint coming my way. Either way, I thought you'd enjoy this story. Thanks for the amazing content. Keep on sucking. I laughed so hard when I first read that, Ian. Holy shit, that is funny to me. I hope she likes the show, uh, and I think even if she doesn't, your job is pretty secure right now. We, oh, man, we need delivery drivers right now. Oh, ho. Another delivery driver message coming in from magnificent, magnificent Meat Sack, BJ Higgins. BJ writes, I love my Baba. <laughs> hey, motherfucking suck master. After the Baba Yaga episode, I learned the etymology of a family tradition. I come from an Irish Slovak family. We have always referred to our grandmother as Baba, although being Irish savages, We pronounce it Bubba. The white trash doesn't end there as a great grandmother is called Big Bubba. (laughs) Surprisingly, none of my aunts are keen on the concept of having their name changed to Bubba so the tradition may die out. Thanks for keeping this mailman entertained as he is soaked by Seattle rain. Suck on, motherfucker. Oh man, I love it. Big, Big Bubba. What, What woman doesn't want to be called Big Bubba by everyone in the family? Thanks for sharing that. Thanks for keeping the mail coming right now. So important. Stay safe. Wash those fucking dirty meat paws off and keep on sucking, BJ. Two more messages. Incredible sucker Jace Jackson Compton has been saved from the depths of wackadoodleness by the suck and I couldn't be happier. Jackson writes, hello, Dan of the, the man of many titles, longtime sucker Jackson here from Northern California. I've been wanting to write you for a long time now, but it is the recent influx of heated emails that have inspired me to reach out. Let me start out by saying that I was very disillusioned with life when I was younger, not to mention I was doing a decent amount of psychedelics. Acid doesn't tend to aid in thinking critically. Therefore, when I flunked a year and was sent to work at my family store, I had a ton of questions and not a whole lot of answers. I was 17. I worked with my uncle. His morning routine was to listen to InfoWars and then followed it up with a whole slew of David Icke videos. Sweet. Well, long story shortish, I got in deep, and I mean real deep. I had all of the curiosity and none of the bullshit detector, which made it easier for me to buy into what David was saying wholeheartedly. I watched hours and hours of his videos and bought a couple of his books. <laughs> so you could say that by the time I started listening to Time suck, I had gone full, lizards are eating our fucking babies, whack-a-doodle. I heard about Time Suck on Pandora when I listened to your stand-up religiously, decided I had to check it out. I loved it immediately, quickly binged six episodes that were out, saw the David Icke suck, listened, and became enraged as you shit on the man I had viewed as the one and only prophet of divine truth in the world. After that, I almost sent you a strongly worded email. So glad I didn't. LOL. Almost stopped listening. But I love the suck so much that I continued to listen and I put our differences aside, which that part is my favorite part. That My favorite part of this whole message. Well, almost actually your transition is my favorite part, but this is a close second. Uh, well, then the secret suck came out and I became a space editor immediately. I listened intently as you delved into David Ike's on The Secret Suck and continued to thoroughly debunk it with cold logic and reason. Not just by making fun of him, which is very important because by doing this, you forced me to look at the whole situation with a fresh perspective instead of just becoming offended and writing you off as closed-minded as I did in the past. I wanted to tell you this so you know that your aggressive stance against wackadoodles really changes lives. You pulled me out of a full-on downward spiral that was going nowhere fast. For this, I cannot thank you enough, Dan. You've given me a new lease on life. Now I can focus on the important things without constantly being worried about stupid fucking lizard people. Ah, Alien things or whatever. I love you and the Time Stuck crew so much. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Please never stop shitting on these dangerous, fuck, stupid ideas. Your sucker and powerful reptilian overlord forever, Jackson Compton. PSI, I am still subscribed to David Icke on YouTube. But now it is just for the laughs. Nimrod is so pleased. I love you, Jackson. Woo! Your, your message gives me hope, man, if, uh, if you can get away from Mike and, the, and, the, and Alex Jones and those types in the world, you know, that means more can also leave the fold of those dangerous con men, those fucking fear mongers who ruin lives under the guise of freedom. That's what I hate about them the most is this whole message of like, I'm freeing your mind. I'm, I'm freeing you from the matrix. No, you're getting people focused on the wrong shit so they don't improve their lives. And I hate them for doing that. And I love you for sending that message. Stay strong during this insanity. Keep thinking critically, you beautiful son of a bitch. Hail fucking Nimrod. Last message of the week coming in from wonderful sucker Ashley Rogers. Ashley writes about the importance of community. She writes, "Dearest Suckmaster, I'm very sad to say I missed your shows in Nashville this weekend because of my coronavirus fears. It was a tough call for me to make. I have been looking forward to this for months. I've heard for years about your giant, giant penis. I heard that during the meet and greet, sometimes you just kind of let it flow down the line like a snake and let various people just touch it just for and rub it for luck. No, I'm, I added that part. So Ashley, She never said that. Ashley Rogers never wrote that part. I, I started lying after uh, looking forward to this for months. Then Ashley says, but ultimately I would have felt selfish for taking the risk and I made the decision to be extra cautious for my family, hoping this all passes as quick as possible so I can travel to see you in another city later in the year. I did want to let you know that in these uncertain times, I'm trying to find ways to help my fellow meat sacks. Being part of the Cult of the Curious has given me such a sense of community and I want to share that like a missionary for Nimrod. My grandparents who mean the world to me are at high risk for COVID-19 like so many others. I took groceries to them today. Couldn't help but think of all the people in their demographic that don't have this support system. So I created a Facebook group called Helping People at High Risk for COVID-19 to connect people who need to get groceries, supplies, medications, et cetera, with people who can help them. Please post that in the Facebook Cult group, by the way. Um, if, If it can even help one person stay safe, it's worth it. It would mean so much to this longtime sucker if you could help me spread the word to more people, grow this network of human beings looking out for one another. Thanks for all you do. Stay safe on the road. Keep on sucking. Ashley Rogers. Well, thank you, Ashley such an amazing meat sack. Yes, we need each other ironically more than ever during this period of social isolation. Yes, people, check out that group helping people at high risk for COVID-19 on Facebook. Please put a link in our Facebook Cult of Curious group. And and thank God for the internet right now. man. thanks thanks for uh these groups, you know, being possible. This is exactly the kind of shit we need in addition to humor. It needs to be spread inside the Cult of Curious and everywhere else right now. Way to be a great example. Sounds like you definitely made the right decision skipping the show. Because of how much I travel, you know, uh, I will not be seeing my grandparents for a while and I will not be traveling uh, for a while, you know? And I've begged my grandparents to to hunker down for a bit and stay away from the fucking slot machines. They were still going. in the height of all the news, they decided to go to the casino and sit on the slots for hours. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Do you want it? Do you just want to get it? Uh, Take care of yourself. Good luck, Ashley. Good luck to all of you. Stay informed. Hail Nimrod. And just try to keep your head up as much as possible, you beautiful, beautiful bastards. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have the best week you can right now, Spaces. Don't rob any banks, as tempting as that may be. Yeah, uh, You could get sick. Hard to rob and, and keep social distance. Luckily, uh, you can keep social distance while you keep on sucking. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock I got a 127-inch cock I throw it over my shoulder and wrap it around my waist Just like Dillinger used to do Making a bunch of silly dick jokes I should probably stop and get to my home Why am I doing this when Lindsay's running errands To help our family stay safe it's not the right time or a bright time to make these stupid jokes. But I keep doing it because it cracks me up to think about such a huge dick. I don't know what I'm saying because I didn't write any of this stuff down. Making it up as if... Uh, you, you got the gist.